People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Here's to a great week and we have quite a few discussions lined up this morning with me and Don and we have a special guest coming on. We'll tell you about him in just a minute. In the meantime, here is a reminder of uh, the fact that you can text us now at 2057. Just straight up. You don't need to put uh, any specific formats. Text to 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And boy, are we glad for the feedback that's been coming in last week, aren't we, Don? Yeah, it's been great and great to be back, Jasper. Good to get the feedback. Um, some of it's um, really, really um, sort of almost sentimental to us. Yeah, the odd ones are acerbic, but we're, we're here to take all sides of the of the of the stories and take the stick when we need it. Absolutely. So let's go through some of the feedback we've received. June, yet another brilliant show of enlightenment from Don and yourself, Jasprit. Thank you very much. We have another one, and Don, this one is for you. Don. Well, it's a- Oh. Stop saying you're old. I'm your age. And my definition of old is anyone 10 to 15 years older than me. There you go, Don. Uh, funny. I like that because all I'm saying there is that uh, I do have 66 years of experience, but other people tell me um, I don't know much. Uh, that was that was what I was effectively going. But hey, all good. Hi, Jasprit and Don. Super interview with Tom DeWeese. I look forward to more in the same vein. Current, articulate, and intelligent conversation. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We hope to please. And I am certainly myself uh, very impressed with Tom DeWeese. He is a man who has kept up this crusade for nearly three decades now. Talk about energy there. Yeah, 100% energy. I mean, he has to say this like any um, crusader, you actually have to tell the story uh, repeated and repeated on message in volume over time, as a former politician used to tell me, and that's how you make a difference. So just remember that in on message in volume over time, and that's what 
uh, Tom DeWeese does. And he does it really well. Your story about your mother, Dawn, reminded me of my mother. Nothing went to waste. Her freezer was always a source of amusement to her children. Uh, oh, yes. I think if my family had heard what I'd said that day, I would have been chastised a little bit for bringing up poor old grandma. That's, that's unfair. Just a test. Taronga is also very situated with security cameras, but I just discovered that the police cannot access them without a special request. I reported drug dealing right in sight of the cameras, but the police told me they did not have access. So what's the point? 15-minute cities? Raven. Very interesting, that. Well, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Uh, as much as I'm no fan of security cameras anywhere, uh, especially when you should think you've got respectful citizens going about their day, uh, having them there and then the police not willing to follow up a, uh, a drug deal that's uh, clearly being um, in sight of others makes yeah. no sense. I thought no. videos were uh, a key thing in surveillance for, like I have them in the back of in my property, and that's been a big help to the police in recent burglaries that I've had. I know we spoke about this the last time, didn't we? Invercargill is getting, what, nearly 150 cameras? Yeah, I read something like a total spend over time of a million dollars. It just seems outrageous. But but there we go. This is the world we live in, and it's not the world that decent citizens choose to live in, actually. It's what uh, has been chosen for us, really. Uh, you know, if, as I said last week, if you can't uh, respect the property of others, what do you respect? It's, it's a problem. Um, the, the argument that what is mine can be theirs or someone else's mm. without a fair exchange is is just wrong. And we're letting so many people away with it uh, today. Uh, you hear of instances where the police just like this, the story is alluding to, just mm. don't turn up under-resourced or just know that it's pointless because there's the judges effectively aren't, aren't giving hard enough sentences on crimes. No. They're not. There's another uh, message, text message uh, in the same vein. It doesn't have a name. It says, all the security cameras you mentioned, just read, are part of the technocratic surveillance grid being implemented under the guise of for security. Hmm. We yeah. shall see, shan't we? Time, what does it bring? Yeah, well, as I said, it's the world we live in, and it's it's not it's not right, and it's it's not just, it's not kind, it's none of the words that our former prime minister uh, wanted. So mm -hmm. it says to me that all those words, um, just, kind, and the like, were effectively hollow. Yeah, it's quite a few people followed uh, Brian Leland last time, mm -hmm. and. There's quite a bit of uh, feedback on that about the fact that, you know, how much are we putting uh, aside for all these solar and wind farms, whatnot, in, at this point in time. And Brian Leland, Leland my apologies, really covered it well. He, he it did. It doesn't and add it, up. No, it doesn't add up um, in the big scheme of things. Uh, but what I do need to make a point of is, if, based on some of the feedback that was saying, we, we're, you know, there was one person wrote in and said, well, they have solar panels, uh, they have battery and they're really happy. Uh, I don't think their battery was big enough, but anyway, they they were really happy with their with their lot. And I was certainly not besmirching uh, their 
character for anyway. I mean, it was their call to, to expend that money. The thing that gets me, though, is when uh, in the older years gone by, there was what was called a feed-in tariff for the extra electricity that the homeowner wasn't using going into the network, and they were getting a premium over what mm. you and I would have paid for it. And that has all changed. But I have no problem with people off-grid or using decentralized systems. The issue is the safety about how they feed in uh, their extra electrons and the cost, the return they get. So look, all power to them, but, uh, you know, we were specifically talking about the, the national grid and it's and the national sort of generation system. And the economics, they're talking mm. about 500 billion uh, spending on this, according to one of the studies uh, Brian spoke about. And the fact that we had a country with $350 million GDP ending last year, where do we and, have that? And of course, it's all predicated on this horrible climate change um, action that, uh, you know, as we talk about in our, with our guest today, none of none of the uh, models, none of the um, the tipping points and, and big, big deal uh, points in time have ever happened. So we're doing all this when those of us that study it know that it's all fallacious. It's all hollow. Uh, do it if you want to be efficient. If you want to drive efficiency, that's great. Uh, but don't, you shouldn't have to tell lies to get stuff over the line. And that's where we seem to be with climate change. Effectively, driving us into penury to save us from ourselves. Yes. Yeah. There's one feedback here I must read out. This is from Tony Coppard. He describes himself as a fit as a fiddle, 93-year young man who doesn't eat tucks. So his feedback is uh, on the chat that we did with David Lawrence of Heartland NZ Party. And Tony it was, writes. Sorry? It was Lawrence Day, actually. He got oh. the name wrong, but it was oh. Lawrence. Lawrence Day was the uh, is the correct uh, Absolutely. guy from, from Heartland. Mm. My apologies. So speaking, uh, writing on behalf of uh, that interview, he says, on behalf of myself and many awake Kiwis, thank you for your emergence on Reality Check Radio to enlighten us of the need to have voices of the Heartland Party, Heartland NZ Party in Parliament to steady our damaged export vehicle. That's the backbone of our economy provided by hardworking farmers throughout the country. Your party seems our only escape from the seesawing political humdrum of overpaid weasels, Tony doesn't mince his words, in the <laughs> beehive that are tainted with outside money and influences to divide the people so that the various activists can steal publicly funded assets like Three Waters. He asks this question of Lawrence, that as a city dweller in Auckland, where is our proposed candidate that we can vote for? No doubt this will take time to organize and find, but... Uh, Perhaps VFF, which has awake members, could offer support. Also, as a 14-year-old, I and another lad worked on a dairy farm when the land girl was ill for a week, and I was amazed how much work and long hours it took to run a small unit of 30 cows, and I was overjoyed to see the land girl return. I look forward to further articles on Reality Check Radio and uh, hoping New Zealand farmers can be proud of the innovative ideas as they grow efficiency. So thank you, Tony. And uh, hopefully, if Lawrence is hearing and we'll pass this on to him, I am very sure he'd be 
thrilled to hear this sort of a feedback. And for listeners who missed that particular episode, I I think uh, Don, you might do this more justice. Lawrence was talking of the Heartland sort of structure, yeah, Heart, Heartlands uh, Party, and that's a new political party that, believe it or, it probably won't help Tony much. Uh, they were looking more at the rural and regional seats than perhaps uh, Takapuna urban. or wherever, yeah, urban. So. But thanks, Tony. Uh, good feedback. And yes, uh, understand your concern about the state of the nation, so to speak. Interestingly, uh, Jasper, I, I thought I have to read this out. Uh, I found it in the Farmers Weekly. Jerry Eckhoff, former ACT MP, hard case, lives in Alexandra now, said this. The following definition I came across some time ago may assist readers to finally understand what Haywaka Ekanoa, uh, which is uh, as we call HWE, and it's about the emissions from ruminant animals, calls carbon trading or sequestering. And it goes like this. Carbon trading is based on paying real money for the non-delivery of a free and invisible substance essential for all life to someone or no one who gets paid for doing something that amounts to achieving nothing. Now, sounds like gobbledygook, but that's exactly how most people are feeling. It is so confusing the way I read it, and I th I'm sure Jerry would agree. Everything has become so confused under the climate change and emissions and carbon dioxide and what's right and who's who's making money and who's not and what the legislation really says. It's all designed to confuse, and that's exactly what that statement says. It's all a much ado about nothing. But a very expensive much ado about nothing, mm. I might add. Mm. But good, good work, Jerry. I'll I might give them a call and give them some feedback. <laughs> Absolutely. Now getting on uh, with, and I I sort of thought between you know we've read about half a dozen of the feedbacks uh, out of well over twenty twenty five that specifically uh, were earmarked to us. I saw a good six or eight of them people talking about fifteen minute cities and smart cities and surveillance, and I went digging here. Because That's an understatement. That's an understatement, listeners. She went digging. Jasper <laughs> went digging. <laughs> Are you having a dig at me, Don? Uh, no, happy that you do it. Happy that you do it. Right. So, so I do, as Don said, I went digging, and uh, I went looking at the Smart Cities Council. So, Smart Cities Council is an organization that talks about how the world needs smart cities and a new urban agenda for us to move forward sustainably to have cities that are livable and God knows what else, all those globalist terms. So looking at the smartcitiescouncil.com, their website, and there was this uh, article from, believe it or not, uh, almost a couple of years ago. It said that New Zealand has announced a global first today becoming the first nation in the world to have all its local councils, so all 78 of them, join the Smart Cities Council. And, you know, I don't know. I, I do read the papers and browse the web about whatever's uh, happening, and I didn't come across this. So who signed us up to this? So the article goes on to say that under the partnership, the Association of Local Government Information Management, ALGIM, ALGEM, or ALGEM, 
and Smart Cities Council Australia and New Zealand, which is another abbreviation, SCC, ANZ, will work together to provide world-leading resources to councils, including SCC, ANZ's leading Smart Cities Academy and Smart Cities Practitioner Certificate Program. So both parties, ALGEM, which is the local uh, government's information management group, and the Smart Cities Australia and New Zealand, will engage in a range of networking, thought leadership, I hate that word, and collaborative, I know you hate that word, Don, project engagement activities. So New Zealand Director for Smart Cities, Australia and New Zealand, so the New Zealand Director is uh, Jannat Makbul. She said, we are excited to continue to build and showcase to other nations how New Zealand is using technology and data to enhance livability, workability, sustainability. So there we have it. Most councils, most councillors, if you speak to them, they have they probably would have no idea that uh, Algem, Algem, which is supposed to manage the information technology side of uh, local government, it, it says Algem on its website, says that its mission is a digitally transformed local government. Their website is algim.org.nz. So how does this happen? None well, of us voted for this. Well, effectively, it, it appears, uh, and I, I'm sure if you ask most councillors around the country, they wouldn't have a clue about it, but clearly someone has voted for it. Uh, mm. They have put it through. Surely a CEO has brought it to the council and it will be perhaps in the recesses, the dark recesses of papers, and it's just happened because this goes well back as I read it. I think 1996, did I see, is its establishment or even before then. And on the other side of that, Jaspreet, um, while it's easy to be cynical about this stuff, information is vital. Having mm. the good information uh, to measure and manage the stuff that you're dealing with is vital. I think your concern, though, is about how the information is used, is it? Or uh, who who owns the information and where its repository might be? Or is there even a need for this collaborative club? Um, what's happened to the individual councils doing uh, stuff for themselves and and keeping their systems tight for their own benefit? Is that is that the concern? My answer is option D, Don, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> so there you go. And and you know, I, um, I imagine you are going to ask at your own council and others, uh, what's this all about? How much does it cost? Uh, where is Where can we find the information for our, our council specifically? Uh, what's it used for? Um, and you have full right to full disclosure, I would have thought. And so should every citizen. Yeah, especially if this is going to digitally transform their lives forever, as uh, Jannath Makbul says, hey, I, I want to know more. Especially because these are councils who right now can't manage bridges, roads, basic services, refuse and uh, rubbish. They're and, taking this on? Uh, yep. And this is the problem we've talked about last week, Jaspreet. And that's why I go back to uh, saying that local government funding and what they fund is the key issue. How it's funding, how the funding 
machine works is the problem. So why is it that property is taxed for people servicing? That's the big one for me. If you can't define uh, the service to a, to a property, why are you doing it? Why is that a people rate rather than a property tax? And then the second point is lots of people that don't pay rates probably don't pay much tax either, uh, I say in jest. Uh, not so non-property owners always get an equal vote to the property owner for the district services mm. and amenities. So why is that? Is that democratic? I, I sort of sense not. Uh, uh, and so my point is this, goes right back to the key problem with local government. It is around the funding mechanism. Property valuation-based rating is completely inappropriate, but it's used, it's used and of course, it, it advantages some sectors of society who aren't paying much and disadvantages the other. And, and the bigger issue is local government can just keep expanding its remit, expanding its desire to have more cash in the pot, in the pot to do this sort of stuff uh, that you're talking about with information management and gathering and all sorts of things. It, it just continues unabated because the property valuation-based rating system allows it to happen. Because all of this costs money. I am looking at the Algem's board on their uh, website, and it is made up of 10 council representatives for the sector. They are CIOs, the chief information officers of councils. So they are on the board of this, and they have tied up on the behalf of councils, so effectively on the behalf of ratepayers with the smart city councils. Uh I simply don't like this at this point. And the other thing is, as some of our listeners might have seen last week at the Southland District Council meeting, which was has to be live streamed for everybody, there were people there. Uh, I think nearly 15 to 20 people were there. The council chambers were full. The public gallery was full. And people had come because they were going to be severely adversely affected by the closure of a bridge here in Southland. And good on them for coming. But uh, it made me wonder, one gentleman broke down in, during the council proceedings. And, you know, his wife, she took over his sheet and she spoke. Why does it have to come to this when we can't stick to the basics, when we can't give our ratepayers the very basis of connected communities? What business do we have going over here? And again, I will look at this the same way as I looked at LG and Z, local government New Zealand, the sort of the advocacy body for councils. So LG and Z is a club. It is a club to which councils pay membership to annually. And LG and Z is like the dairy and Z of New Zealand. You're supposed to speak for councils in Wellington. LG and Z took it upon itself uh, last year to sign an agreement with the Crown that it would help drum up support for three waters. So in a way, it uh, took the lead in handing over an asset that was not its to hand over on the behalf of ratepayers. And I wonder whether Algem or Algem, I, I don't know what to call this, A-L-G-I-M, is doing a bit of the same, handing over data to smart city councils because they keep saying digitally transformed. So you obviously need data for that. What about all our privacy laws and what is this going to be used for these metrics? It, it, it worries me because over the last three years, we have seen 
an increasing enrochment of the government in the lives in the lives of private citizens this morning i was speaking to a friend uh, in the north island and uh, he was telling me he'd been to china just before covid so 2019 he said he he traveled to china and for his work he goes there you know once every two or three years and he said the last time he had gone he had a guide there so when they were on a table they ordered lunch there was a qr code so this is well before covid there was a qr code at the table and you just had to sort of scan or swipe your card which is guided and you didn't even need to go to the you know the reception or whatever to pay your bill it was just paid out there on the table he said when they were crossing from one territory to another his guide she had to swipe a certain biometric id card to cross between different areas of china so this is within the same country and this friend of mine he asked her what are you doing well she says say if i've defaulted on a loan or we've spoken something about uh, you know somebody uh, a local or a national government or criticize something she says this is all recorded so i said were you also asked to get some sort of a card as a foreigner he says no i wasn't but you could not travel alone so you had to be with a local guide and the guide had to be doing all of this you know call me cynical i don't like the way we are going no we fully uh, understand uh, where you're coming from jasper and of course George Orwell in 1984 talked about all this sort of stuff the big brother influences um having you know I've, I've been in, on a on a, a trip to China where I was absolutely under surveillance uh in this university town uh, my every movement was watched for um the four days I was there I had no idea where I was because I couldn't see out this the fog it wasn't smog actually it was fog Uh-huh. Um, I didn't know what was up down east west it was it was pretty average but yeah I was outside my room the moment I moved the door handle there was someone there it was unbelievable and all I had was my old blackberry connecting to New Zealand that was my lot so look at the world's world's a strange place and it's it's right that you challenge these entities i mean i've looked at their uh going back to elgem I've looked at the powers of Elgem and you do wonder um I'm sure you will have a budget in your annual plan for the membership of Elgem mm. you do wonder if these senior staffers are getting a, an honorary as well as being paid by councils to be there uh but you know it has been ticked off by councils around the country and it's now a matter for you as a councillor and others to question value for money and what they do with the information uh and the like cuz uh, like any business information is key to how you drive your efficiency and if that's what it's being used for and that's all it's being used for then that's probably okay but good that you're cynical <laughs> so they they the smart cities uh, SCCNZ the smart cities council for australia and new zealand for whom uh, Jannat Bakbul is the country director they speak of and it's on their website in October 2018 they released a code for smart communities there's a brief outline on the website about 24 pages worth of the code and they talk about the fact that this code has been inspired by global best practice frameworks 
for sustainable urban development, such as Green Star Communities, the Eco Districts Protocol, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The code in isolation, however, only has a certain level of impact. Users of this code, this 24-pager, should be also consulting the Smart Cities Readiness Guide, the Smart Cities Standard Guidance, the Social Impact Guidance Note, Civic Innovation Guide. Good Lord. <laughs> and if there's one thing anyone knows about me, it is that I do not trust the United Nations as far as I can throw them. I haven't <laughs> trusted them since 1992 when my dad went to Somalia as a peacekeeper. And then later, my brother in the Indian Army went to Congo as a peacekeeper. Two decades after that, came back from Africa. And here we are designing a code based on the United Nations SDGs. Wow. Uh, well, and you made me read a little more about the United Nations, uh, Jaspreet, over time in recent months. Um, I've done a bit of that. And certainly there has been some, would you say, nepotism at the top. And yeah, some devious action. Uh, it's well reported, uh, mm. but still, the United Nations seems to be held up as this this model entity that's doing great for the world. Well, uh, you clearly don't believe that, and you're rightfully cynical or cautious about the output from the United Nations. And so, when you link in um, the Sustainable Development Goals and 169 sub pillars, and then you get told by others that we're going to, uh, yeah, when you see see entities such as New Zealand and Australia joining into, or countries like New Zealand and Australian cities joining into the United Nations smart cities concept. Uh, yeah, you've got a right to be cynical. And I, look, I learned new words in this code. Uh, I never heard of brownfield. I mean, we've got greyfield, we've got brownfield, we've got campus, we've got greenfield, which I thought I knew about. There's so many terms. And I, as we talk about later in the show with our guest, how documents are written these days is all designed to confuse. Uh, and it seems that the people, if people that don't own anything have a good way of doing it. They own mm. their words, they own their style, they own their job, but their output is all about self-interest and making sure that they say, well, I'm, I'm convinced that what we read in that code could be on one page and it would be a whole lot simpler. Mm, mm. And and we and we may actually like it. We may say this is a good thing, fat chance. But <laughs> um, but on one page, it would be a whole lot simpler than twenty four with all the uh, all the, the way they they've written it. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm a bit like you. I'm well, sorry, you're, you've got this more defined in your head. I'm a bit all over the place uh, because I do think we do need to have efficiency efficiency drivers, as I've said before. Things do need to be. Uh, well structured if you're going to have decent cities but we seem to be doing um something that free enterprise would just do fine without all this magical paper writing that's uh that's that, that's put in front of us uh yeah. look here I see, here I see innovative responsive aware connected strategic I mean the real world does all that stuff don't I need know. these people writing it just like the real world was kind without our particular brand of kindness that we saw in the last three years. So going through these, this code, they talk about guidance documents and where have they taken guidance from? The British Standards Institute, the Internet of Things Alliance, the Green Building Council, 
the eco districts and this name has come a couple of times in this document already so i i looked up what is eco districts the website is ecodistricts.org and they talk about all right what are these so this seems to be an american uh, influence here but when you go to ecodistricts.org and click about just the about because that's what i do when i don't know something i go to the website and i say right let me see if i can get a one liner what do they say building a just growth movement we believe that when we prioritize positive outcomes in racial equity and climate resilience we build the communities we need and deserve inclusive just and restorative right so that's where we start from so these neighborhoods are about climate resilience and equity equity equality of outcomes not equality of opportunities which would just be called equality equity and then one of the tabs on this eco districts goes to black lives matter under resources eco districts stands in solidarity with black activists that demand swift and substantial changes to policing criminal justice community investment and we are focused on centering racial equity in every aspect of urban development right there we are done then that didn't take long didn't take long and see you do the <laughs> stuff really well jasprit uh and all power to you uh it's it, it's easy to see how the web we talk about in the tentacles and the hydra it all plays out through so many facets of of our governors and governance and and the roles and responsibilities they say they have they're creating their own roles and responsibilities for uh of god knows crony capitalists i suppose um and and it's happening right in front of our nose i mean george orwell and uh and his mates have or, or people that subscribed to his ethos would have been as as in his book of 1984 would be they'll be laughing because we've we we're going down the trail of his ethic or his his writings um very simply we're just falling into line i look i i would love if the provinces of new zealand um and the councils just retained their individuality did what they thought was right for their community and and left it at that we don't need to be part of some international club how does that add value it doesn't it's all about control centralized yes. control absolutely mm. absolutely and if we were so much about equity and eco districts as i've just heard nz herald on the 24th of april a couple of weeks ago had this whole article about rotorua man with rare disability faces homelessness with habitat for humanity's new housing plan so this is a 46 year old who has lived in a rotorua habitat for humanity house for last 6 years five of which were with his mother who's now deceased she took care of him and she is passed this gentleman has a disability and uh, habitat for humanity at this point seems to find it hard to house him they have because habitat for humanity have agreed to enter into an agreement with the ministry of housing to build two three bedroom homes on the section and one four bedroom on which he was so his house is being bulldozed and the homes 
will be offered under a progressive home ownership rent-to-buy scheme. But Green, this gentleman said, the C- chief executive of Habitat for Humanity said that the reason and the fact for ministry's priorities were for Maori and Pacifica families and people, and therefore Hazeldeen Barber, the handicapped man in question, was not eligible or suitable for the program because it's come down to ethnicity. So where where is the done equity in this? You tell me. So we have suddenly decided to look at the entire world through a race-based lens. So there's this man in New Zealand that was living in a Habitat for Humanity housing. And all right, maybe they had to bulldoze it. There were four more houses coming up. Why can't one of those be earmarked for him? Because he is not the rice right ethnicity. God damn it. I never thought I'd see this day here. It's a scandal. It's an absolute scandal if, uh, if I'm assessing this correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and you're obviously, I'm, I'm watching the body language of, of um, Jaspreet across a Zoom call, listeners, so I can see it. She is not happy about this concept, and I don't blame her because it is wrong that people are not given uh, access to what they've already had before, and this guy clearly has a bigger problem now. He has, His carer has passed away. Um I don't know. Uh, look, let's hope. Let's hope there's a good news story at the end of this. Uh, but but you're 100 percent right that ethnicity uh, trumping everything else is just nonsense. Yeah, and this is these are not my words. These are the words of the Habitat for Humanity's chief executive that they can't help him because the ministry is uh, prioritizing people based mm. on their genetic makeup, mm. not on their needs. So, yeah, you set up a code based on equity and eco-districts and all of that nonsense and uh, have us, uh, you know, really high-tech, completely digitized. But where is the humanity in that? Oh, this is us, the former prime minister would say. This is us. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's not right. So let's hope we can uh, report on a better news story for that, that person in the next few weeks. Let's hope something better emanates and let's hope there's some common sense prevails with regard to how Habitat for Humanity play their cards. So there is there is a couple of uh, developments, one being the Australian, the new Olympic village that's being built, and the other is the Yara Bilba community in Australia that have been developed under the Smart Cities Code. And uh, when I'm looking at... Uh, you know, the Yarra Bilba community in Australia, look at their website. Lendlease is a company that's developed them. And they have approved fauna corridor management plans. They have offset management plans, year one, environmental protection and biodiversity conservation approvals reports. They have how many koalas and koala monitoring reports monthly. Ugh. They have Wi-Fi everywhere. They have, uh, and they have spoken in this uh, New Zealand code about smart, uh, smart everything, smart housing, smart construction, smart lighting, even. And gosh, when I, they say common areas for quick payback, if you're developing a smart city, the first one they say is smart streetlights. They are an excellent first project as they embrace the latest generation LED lighting to save costs and maintenance requirements. They can be fitted with controllers 
to enable remote diagnosis, provision of public Wi-Fi, and serve to capture a vast array of data for smarter decision-making. Who would have thought a light can do all of that, Don? Well, uh, the light and the, and, the, and the pole that it stands on can do a whole lot of stuff. Uh, in fact, I'd uh, heard that uh, potentially in these cities that have no off-street parking or no garaging for some cars, uh, off-street car charging could happen at lampposts. Uh, but they would all have to be beefed up with a whole lot more current. Uh, but these lampposts are going to be very useful potentially. And of course, you're right, the lights are, have, have rolled out everywhere. And, and the argument that when they were rolled out was that there were going to be considerable saving in energy, as there has been. Mm. But but what else? I don't know. I was not cynical <laughs> enough to ask. Uh, but, <laughs> but interestingly, they talk about uh, this Lendley's outfit, a big company, I know it is, I used to yeah, I know it's listed on the stock exchange. Uh, they were one of the sponsors of that Algam uh, meetings in Auckland, the workshop. So, yeah, these people, these capital, uh, you know, these companies aren't stupid. If yeah. local government's going to get them a chance, they're going to going to take it boots and all. I mean, it, it is a bit weird though. We we're introducing a circular economy, and um, you look at that. Look. What's a circular? We we first launched as as launched our circular economy strategy in 2019 and been recognized as an industry leader with a master with master plan communities. I mean, and then you read the eight concepts under there. Probably none of them are really too radical, but it's they've got their um they've got their their agenda. It's setting and train a business model for the likes of Lendlease um to to work. Uh, it's it's all too easy. I mean and the other thing that I, we have never talked about, I don't think, is uh, public-private partnerships where local authority and governments get into bed with with a big business, and all of a sudden uh, you think that's good because oh, there's some private capital in there, and that's going to take mm-hmm. risk, and everything's going to be sweet. Well, uh, I don't know. Someone told me about Transmission Gully the other day and how its roads packing up already. I think that was a private-public partnership. You know, do you get the quality of workmanship when you have these? Um, these style of investments. I don't know. I'm, I'm now starting to question that. Never would have questioned it before, but you do. The work you're doing, Jaspreet, is starting to make me question stuff I've never questioned before. And incidentally, the I think it's a sustainable goal number 17, where they talk uh, of uh, public-private partnerships. So the United Nations has also spoken about the same thing, that public-private partnerships are needed. Public private partnerships are essentially a death knell for democracy. You have private business coming in, getting into bed with their government and the ratepayer, they're not answerable to you, the taxpayer or the ratepayer. And there they go off and you you just keep watching for a bit of capital. If that, usually it is your own money that's subsidizing them, you lose your voice. But here you are, these smart zero emission cities. So, you know, in case you thought it was just farming, that was going to be hammered by uh, the net zero insanity. Wakey, wakey. But, it It is more than that. And I, and I know that uh, on the show, uh, the accusation could be leveled. God, you always speak about climate change and global warming and stuff, Don. And that's what I deduced many years ago, that everything was linked 
back to the sphere of tomorrow, the sphere of the future. Uh, and of course, we're unbundling that for you every week uh, around stuff like this uh, and how uh, cities and, and towns are being told they have to manage themselves better from rising temperatures or rising sea level. And, you know, it just seems to be over the top. Uh, as we talked about, this is uh, in, in the show today and the, in the with our, with our special guest, we're talking trillions of dollars to do this net zero stuff. No one seems to be batting an eyelid. And you have just talked about public-private partnerships, uh, Jaspreet. There will be a plethora of them involved in this whole regime. Uh, we haven't even started to unbundle that. So God knows where it all ends up. But point how it ends up with you paying some more and me paying some more uh, for stuff I don't need or desire. Uh, I'm quite happy to take the risk of a rising temperature myself. I'm quite happy to manage my own risk risks. I know society in a bigger scheme of things where you have built up cities. I, you know, as a farmer, I can say that. Uh, I don't expect any help from the state or ratepayers. Uh, but I understand in a city, you do have to manage stuff uh, like flood banks or like uh, uh, your waste streams or your water supplies. Uh, and your roads, that's just fundamental. But I would suggest uh, getting value for money out of the service delivery of the formation and maintenance of all that stuff is far more important than building something around RCP 8.5 uh, under climate policies. That's overbuilding, by the way, listeners. That is way, way overbuilding what any decent society would ever ask for. Well, it seems, you know, there's Wellington, and we've often spoken about Auckland's climate plan. I am looking at Wellington City's zero carbon implementation plan, you know, smart Wellington, just like one of those smart cities, zero emission city. They call it the T Atakura. First to zero. Oh, yeah, it is going to be first to zero, but that zero is not what you're thinking. It's actually going to be first down the gurgler here. Let's have a look at this plan. And Wellington seems to be absolutely on steroids now, what they want to do. And not uh, surprising seeing that it is uh, the home to the beehive, home to the consultant industry. They speak about very proudly in the Wellington 2020-2030 first to zero plan about how well uh, they are in the EV numbers. But they are now talking about consumption-based emission charges in the plan, and what are they measuring? So at 53%, the Wellington Council's plan says, 53% of the city's emissions, we need a rapid reduction in fossil fuel vehicles. Rapid. So I think maybe getting rid of roads might just be the best, just you know, get it all done with one swoop there. <laughs> and... They talk of global partnerships to achieve it. And this is where I like transparency, Don. Global partnerships on page eight of the Wellington Council's plan. The council is a member of several international initiatives where we are recognized globally as a city leading on climate action and transparency. In 2019, we made it to the Carbon Disclosure Project A-list in recognition of our ambitious emission reduction targets it seems you just set up the targets. That's enough for recognition, you know. Action can follow later. 
We are also part of the 100 Resilient Cities Network and the Global Covenant of Mayors. All right. So a couple of UN organizations ticked and ticked over there. But they are talking about what else can we do? You know, put a whole lot of chargers in the city, but also prepare people for blackouts at the same time. What can we do? Maybe we need to invest more into forestry, country, as if we don't have enough already. They're but wanting I, to do more of that. I think it's only with native forestry, though, native trees. I think and it, it says as far as possible. Yeah. <laughs> right tree in the right place. Or... Oh, it's interesting. Um, just going to another page there, they talk about action area transportation. Now, I know these figures will have changed, but... Um, they're very proud of progress so far. 6% decrease in road uh, transport emissions between 2001 and 2019. 30 kilometers of cycleway built. 90 car share vehicles in the city. Uh, 90, that's significant. Uh, mm. And 5,970 average users a month. Nine fast and 14 residential electric vehicle charges installed in the city as of June 2020. Now, I know there'll be a lot more today. Uh, 1,437 electric vehicles as of May 2020. But over further, it talks about investing in electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Wellington City has one of the highest EV ownership rates in New Zealand, unsurprisingly, actually. And the number of EVs in the city is forecast to grow from 1,300 to 7,500 by 2024. This growth will overwhelm the current charges in the city. International research and local evidence shows that almost all EV owners use a public charger at least once a month, usually to enable longer distance travel. Yeah, like going up to Foxton to have a coffee. In Wellington, residents over uh, uh, residents of over 20,000 households cannot park their car on the property, meaning they would be reliant on public charging facilities. Maybe those poles holding lamps could be the secret here. Anyway, it says... Council, therefore, has a role in seeing the charging station network develop. A business case seeks formal approval to fund the installation of around 60 EV fast chargers in public locations around the city by 2025. My point here, when ever before have vehicles needed anything more than private enterprise to fuel them? Never, ever. That's what your gas station is now, putting petrol and diesel in your vehicles why should it be special for EV owners? Go and find your own provision of services. Do not expect the state to do it and do not expect your ratepayers to do it. I find that uh, over the top, outlandish um, expectations driven by this document. How amazing it is that someone like you and I or someone in rural New Zealand who lives at the end of a dirt road who needs a four-wheel drive to be able to get through because out here, the spine's now going to be shading my road to town. We are subsidizing Tesla owners in Ponsonby. Couldn't, you know, couldn't have written the script better. Oh, well, it gets worse, uh, Jasper. As, as, uh, I'll just try and bring it up while we're talking. Uh, this week, um, mm. even more cynical has been the approach against uh, farmers and tradesmen with regard to the ute taxes for the sub for for basically paying the C, the uh, subsidy to EV owners um, abhorrent, but this government in a cynical move 
to try and bolster their EV uptake, which may have been tanking actually, because you know there's been a bit of a fervor for them, but you know, uh they're not for everybody. Uh they've now given a bigger inducement uh, effectively by adding a increased tax to Ute owners. Of course, on one hand, sorry, I need to say also they have also um acknowledge that there is more efficient fuel cars coming on the market and utes and if mm. the co2 emissions are have reduced to a level then that's not so bad but regardless this ev push and the privilege that ev owners are getting from other taxpayers and now by the look of it the wellington ratepayer uh i find uh unfair because as i said there was no market failure in the provision of petrol and diesel and 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 the like uh private enterprise does that just fine and that should be the case for um for electricity and and it can be it doesn't need to have any uh rate payer or taxpayer funding if the market is left to do its bit they will happen now i know i happen to know the cost of those 50 um the, the high uh, mega charges they aren't cheap so uh i hope that uh I hope some common sense comes here. I know it feels feels really nice to have this supposed clean energy source and uh, the electricity sector salivating about the electrification of New Zealand. And actually, as a person who was part of it, I acknowledge that uh, electricity is a really clean way to do business in this country uh, if, if you generate your electricity out of renewable energy. But giving privilege, and I've always fought this even around the board table, giving privilege is wrong, and it always will be. So, yeah, uh, Wellington, you know, I hope uh, I hope you can stand tall in a couple of years' time and say we didn't put a hand up and take money, but I have a feeling I will be, <laughs> I'll be eating my words. I know. Mm-hmm. It, and this is like, you know, I have people sometimes asking me, oh, do you know about 15-minute cities or smart cities or sustainable cities it is really confusing they use all these uh, different terms all these different codes and so on and the way the creep comes in it uh, reminds me of london so some places where sajid khan in uh, london is bringing in those ultra low emission zones ulez in some other places it's called the clean streets initiative in somewhere else it's called something else so it is just a whole lot of different terminology. And sometimes your representatives can, you know, in all honesty, be saying they don't know because they actually don't know what the heck is going on. So, look, uh, we would like to believe that all this is uh, heading New Zealand in the right direction in terms of, as I keep harping on about, efficiency, efficiency of resource use. Uh, we went we went to this point in 1985 where we decided we would deregulate labor markets deregulate a whole lot of things deregulate uh, and take privilege away from farming the transport industry uh now we've got these people starting to say we need to control the, the movement of goods and services around the country now the reason we had to have a deregulated uh transport or, or freight system in this country i think when i started farming the farmers' trucks could only go 80 kilometers from home. It was restricted. There was something like that. And so we had really poor 
competition for freight uh, movement and animal movement and the like. All that was opened up. The railways got uh, got hammered because they were inefficient. They didn't survive. We got big trucks, big rigs on the road, moving goods and services around rapidly. I mean, effectively, you can have stuff in Auckland coming to Invercargill in 24 hours. Uh, wouldn't have happened on rail. Wouldn't have happened with a regulated transport system. So we've broken all that mould. And now what I see, if if I read the subtle subtleties in this stuff, what I read is going back to the future, yeah, back to where we were, yeah. uh, restrictive, uh, slow, inefficient, and the like. Now, you'd like to believe that's not going to happen because we've got smart people with all this new information that we talked about earlier. All this new information should make stuff far smarter. And logistics management in this country is really smart. So why would you want to change it? I don't get it. Control and confusion. Mm. For anyone, I mean, you can go and look at the Smart Cities Council website, but there is also another handy website, which is what I mean by adding confusion. There is sustainablecities.org.nz. They call themselves We Are a New Interdisciplinary Research Center dedicated to providing research base for innovative solutions for social, economic, environmental, and cultural development of our urban centers, the same for well-beings that we use at Council. And it is based at the University of Otago in Wellington, alongside our sister research center, Kiangaora, Housing and Health Research Center. So, you know, from healthy homes to smart cities, you just keep on seeing the tentacles just increase and increase and just go all over the place. But I'm looking at uh, who they say their partners are. So partners are University of Otago, Auckland University, Massey, Victoria, and World Health Organization. And goodness me. So they talk of uh, world in this section. They have a World Health Organization collaborative center working with the University of Otago collaborating on housing and well-being to develop a methodology to estimate the burden of disease with poor housing conditions in Aotearoa. Well, you know, listeners, maybe since this weekend just gone, we heard uh, finally World Health Organization declared that the COVID global health emergency is over. Maybe this is where the World Health Organization is heading next. Get us into sustainable cities. Who would know? Let's watch the space. Uh, I think that's a good warning, uh, Jaspreet. Amazing. Uh, I'd, I'd missed that. I'd missed that, you know, that that bit of news that the COVID emergency is over. It is uh, over. They have finally decided this last weekend that it is over. Oh, was it over in New Zealand? Is it over? Uh, uh, it's over globally. They, uh, globally. They, they rule the world. Oh, they tell is, the whole world what to do. As a... Dr. Doom and Dunedin um, given up. Michael Baker, as he sort of said, it's over here, or is he? No, he is, he's another law into himself. But uh, World Health Organization has said that it's over, possibly just in time for, I believe, uh, US is dropping its travel restrictions uh, this week. So it all works in. But I think just before we wrap this first segment up, Don, uh, you and I, we were looking at this report from insidegovernment.co.nz mm. about how 
This new report finds, uh, this is dated May the 6th, new report finds rural communities, uh, sorry, May the 4th, will be devastated by emissions pricing. A new report released by Business NZ says rural communities like Southland, Wairoa, South Taranaki will be devastated by agricultural emissions. And uh, what's new? Why did you need a new report for that, Don? And I could have told you that a long time ago. Uh, you know, I left Wellington <laughs> in 2011 and my storyline hasn't changed. We saw all this uh, coming down the, the pipeline at us then, uh, but we've managed 12 more years of push and pull. And now mm. this analysis estimates that 54,607 jobs in key upstream and downstream industries nationally are vulnerable if ag emissions become subject to pricing. And it goes on to say, and that doesn't include vulnerable on-farm employment and sheep, beef and dairy farming, which together employ a further 44,500. So what we're saying here is we've got close on 100,000 people at risk from emissions pricing. So why is it uh, that uh, we continue to do uh, to do this or present this push to have animal emissions priced? There is no logical reason for it, never has been. It is clear now and I know I've talked about this, that methane and nitrous oxide have such a minuscule uh, uh, effect on warming that it's measured in hundredth of a degree per decade or per century. So at best, they are not worthy of recording, actually. And yet we're talking about still having a tax. So what I'd like to think about all this is that this is the way to slowly let it all go away. People are trying to eat some humble pie. They're trying to slowly back out and say, we, without saying they got it wrong. I know this was from a um, business group, but I have a feeling, I have a feeling that even the farmer lobby groups that have let us down are trying to find some way they can get out with some state status left. And oh. is this the way it's going to play out? A bit like people who don't want to admit that COVID was a bit of an overreach. Uh, and I'm saying a bit of an overreach, a big overreach. Uh, uh, you're more optimistic than me. You know, for, for me, 2019, Jacinda speaking at the Goalkeepers Conference, uh, the Gates Forum in New York, saying that New Zealand is going to do what no other country has done before. We are mm. going to put the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals into a wedded legislation. These methane mm. and nitrous oxides, you and I went back to the Club of Rome documents. Mm. In the 70s, they were talking of oxides of nitrogen and how those need to be taxed. So why is it that New Zealand wants to go headfirst into where angels fear to tread? Why are we such amazing lab rats for these United Nations globalist experiments? And I'm not going to mince my words. That's what we are. Why is that? Have you uh, been asleep at the wheel too long? For yeah, far uh, too long? Oh, uh, and there are people in New Zealand that want to uh, believe that this is the right thing to do. There will be, in terms of farming emissions, there will be produce uh, premiums for, for New Zealand, highly credentialed foods. Uh, no one can tell me that uh, that's a truism. No one. It's easy for marketers and politicians and farmer leadership groups to say that that's what they've been told. But the dollar value's never been put in front of me. And, and you know, aside from all that, I want the ability to have 
uh, I want to trade my own products, and I might call them high emissions animals. Uh, and uh, here's my credentials. I don't <laughs> want them to be all put in the same pot as everybody else's. And so that's the problem when you trade with this notion in your mind that you're trading as New Zealand Incorporated. Mm. That's the problem. Well, yeah. I would like to ask these people who you think, you know, you're referring to who think that they're going to get a premium. Have they noticed the price of everything is increasing? Price of food, housing, power. How long and for how, what sort of sustained period are they willing to undergo hardship to be more sustainable? Their own lives, the lives of the children. How many generations do they think that they can continue like this just for a better future? Well, maybe their own future is not that bright. Well, the argument is that we we can feed uh, 40 or 50 million people apart from ourselves with our produce. Um, I think it's a lot more than that, actually, if you talk about sensible calorific intake rather than sort of fast food stat types have calorific intake. I mean, I'm being facetious, but I I remember calculating it away back and we could feed double that number of people and they, they wouldn't be hungry. But anyway, let's say it's 50 million people. So that's the argument is that we will feed 50 million rich people. That's the argument. And, you know, maybe there's some semblance of truth around that. But uh, interestingly, as I said, the people that say, look, I'll I'll, I'll sell low-credentialed food. Give me that price, and I don't want to do all the other compliances. I wonder who whose net profit will be better at the end of the year. <laughs> so this this report Don and I were referring to was by the Business Sense at Serious Policy, a senior policy advisor, Future of Work, Mark Cox. Hmm. And he has called for a review of the current methane targets to take better into account the warming impact. Mark Cox says, our current targets aren't grounded in science, or really, and we go further and faster than what's required, and that's adds cost and puts our rural communities at risk. You know. And, sorry to interrupt, and you know, uh, I've taken your train of thought away. And it took Business New Zealand senior policy advisor to say that uh, our current targets aren't grounded in science and <laughs> go further and faster than is required. That's what all adds all the cost and puts our rural communities at risk. I mean, I know that some of the lobby groups, Fed Farmers and others, have talked about rural communities, but they refused to discuss the science. Refused. And clearly, you know, after listening to me for months, Jaspreet, um, I believe uh, me and many others like me have the latest science, and it shows that there's a non-issue. Methane and nitrous oxide, non-issue period. Don't even bother carrying on. Mm -hmm. uh, and our next guest is going to talk about um, his concepts to have methane reductions, but it's all about efficiency driving for his, from his point of view, rather than um, playing into the legislation. Nothing to do with the legislation. So hope hope people enjoy his overview of it. Yes. So just before we leave you for a couple of minutes, we will be talking to Dr. Kelvin Duncan. and. Uh, about just what the Mark Cox, the policy advisor, said, how things are not grounded in science. So you're looking forward to Dr. Kelvin Duncan giving us a grounding in the science, the real science, not what passes for as science now. For those uh, who might want to have a background look at him, 
go to Tross, that's with a T, trosspublishing.co.nz and have a look at his book, Global Warming, A Counterblast to the Man-Made Global Warming Hypothesis. You'd find it interesting. And uh, thank you for joining us on this Monday morning. For your texts, our number is 2057. And for emails, please have them coming at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Don and I will be back in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet. Um, we welcome your feedback. Uh, text 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio and uh, today we're going to welcome in a very um, good speaker I have to say I was going to say hilarious speaker he is a very funny chap if you let him loose but we'll get him on serious stuff today Uh, Dr Calvin Duncan Dr Calvin Duncan has done so much it's hard to give him give it justice Um, so I'm going to just say I think he's an Olympian in academia, sciences, business. He's an author. There's not much he hasn't done uh, after his university days. But let's ask Kelly uh, how he began his life uh, way back in Dunedin and take it from there. Welcome. Um, I, we have got the, uh, uh, the okay to call him Kelly, but Dr. Kelvin Duncan. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. And you exaggerate everything, of course, Don. Um, I'm actually quite a humble person, and, I, and nobody thinks my jokes are very funny. Well, I'm I'm happy to have them. I mean, my jokes aren't funny either, but we try hard, don't we? We do try hard. <laughs> yeah, so so we've just heard that you, uh, off here, that you uh, were brought up in Dunedin, and uh, a bit of a bit of a comment about the Caledonian ground and how Kelly came about. Yes, yes, that's, uh, do you want me to repeat that? Oh, I think you can. Well, um, my mother, of course, I knew I was always in trouble when I was a child because my mother and my aunts would call me Kelvin rather than my nickname Kelly. The way I got the Kelly nickname, my brother, my older brother, said it was because I was so naughty that I resembled an Australian person of the same nickname, same name, Ned Kelly. But in actual fact, it was when I was a toddler, I was taken to the Caledonian ground in Dunedin and to see all the sports and goings on. And I was enthralled by this. So for the days afterwards, I kept on trying to convince my parents to take me back to the Caledonian ground. And I ran around the house saying, Kelly, 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 because I couldn't say Caledonian in those days. And I'm getting to the age now where I probably won't be able to say Caledonian now, but uh, I still manage. Anyway, so Kelly came about. So what the resemblance to Ned Kelly? Uh, well, you don't. You haven't got the armory on. Uh, we, we've taken it off for today. Um, taken my bucket off. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the Caledonian ground. Remind me about that. That was that a rugby ground or a soccer ground? Well, it was um, cycling was the big thing, I think. But they also had soccer. But occasionally they would have a big fair there that was absolutely marvelous. Um, Chinese lanterns and marquees, all the things that would uh, uh, would inspire a kid brought up during the war when things were pretty grim and no cars, no men, 
only the only men that I remember were cripples from the First World War. It was a terrible existence, and we went nowhere because you it, it, the posters were as your voyage, as your journey, strictly necessary. And yeah. of course, a two and three and four year old didn't have strictly necessary journeys except local ones. Uh, so we we never went anywhere. No holidays, nothing. Horses, of course, there were lots of horses. And I thought this was quite normal. So when um, the the war eased up and my father came back in 1943, um, we, we started having much more fun in our lives than playing in the air raid shelters that were on the Oval. We, we weren't ever air raided, so they made very good children's playgrounds rather than... Uh, Fantastic. Isn't it interesting, Jasper and I uh, and other parts of our shows talk about uh, the the smart cities uh, concepts and how restrictive they're going to be. Uh, you may not, we, we won't talk about that perhaps today, but um, you you were liberated and here we are in the modern era trying to restrict our movements. So uh, that's the new concept. Uh, let's not talk about that just so early in the program. Well, just a comment. I, I was at a Chogham and Indian... Um, town planners were trying to make their city more livable by having essential services with an easy walking distance of the residents. So it was a dispersed city that uh, would be much more pleasant than the immense crowding into the central CBD. Uh, I don't know how they've done this, how they got on with it, but it sounded a good plan to me. Well, uh, we see, I just said we're not going to talk about it. Perhaps we should continue on that vein for a moment. <laughs> Um, it seems that the opposite is uh, is the intent today. It is all about control rather than happiness. Uh, maybe, uh, Jasper, you've got a comment. Uh, do you recall your days in, in India, how it was played out? Oh, Don, the best lays laid plans of mice and men. What the intentions are and what the outcomes happen to be often, you know, are a complete, complete world apart. And I have no doubt many of these people have the best of intentions. But we've seen the repercussions in some places. We see London, especially, and parts of uh, other parts of the UK speak out uh, against the, they call them, I think, the ULEZ, the ultra low emission zones or something. And they seem to have a whole lot of different terms. But it all ends, ends up coming back to the same. But that does bring us to what you and I have often been talking about, emissions and how they seem to, regardless of what I am buying, literally, I could be buying a jacket for my kids from somewhere and there is something about low emissions and circular economy, or I could be buying food or meat especially, and there is carbon miles. Can't seem to get away from the fact. And Kelly, you, you I know you've trained as a biologist, yes. but life somehow, and I go through your body of work you have a PhD in biology, but you have helped establish the resource management courses in the University of Canterbury, Lincoln, served on its joint board of management for some years. Has it always been like this or are we, or well, is something really? Yes, um, I went with the flow to a large extent, but looking back, tertiary education has been somewhat corrupted by the emergence of studies courses. <laughs> like studies in Antarctica. It's once over lightly of everything that goes on in Antarctica. Mm. Um, there's no in-depth that you get with subject studies. Geologists are no longer geologists. They are earth scientists and environmentalists. 
And I maintain that this is the wrong approach because things are complicated. It takes an awful lot of study to conquer a subject. And yet we are now doing this once over likely stuff, which is exacerbated by the um, ability of people to get quick summaries that are just superficial and once over likely. And it's even worse, we can now get them to write uh, very convincing essays, which they've had no input at all to with um, chat, GTP, and so on. So uh, there's that. But I was going to make the, I think, important point. Oh, you want a question? Yes, sorry. No, 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 no you go. I'm just. Oh, the important point that fundamentally there are two kinds of societies. There's one where the powerful make the rules and people obey the, the powerful. They submit to the powerful. And China is a beautiful example of that. Endure. And Confucianism started that many millennia ago, and it still prevails today. Other societies are where the people make the rules and they answer to the laws, not necessarily to the powerful. Two completely contrasting um, situations. And I think the world is drifting back into the autocracy of submitting to the will of the powerful who make the laws. And in New Zealand, you can see that creeping in more and more. Subtle little ways, like we're given far too little time and opportunity to comment on essential bills that have been proposed. This is a denial of democracy. It's actually a switch in the total tenor of humankind to the autocratic submission system of governance. That's what we're facing. And if that sort of contextualizes everything that probably I'll be saying. How's well, that? that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's our experience as well. And um, last week I had a comment that I meant, mentioned about the word submission. It is to basically capitulate, give in. And yet that's the language you've got to submit to policy. Well, I would have thought you need to object or have input or, as you put it, um, make comment. Um, but submitting is the wrong thing to do at the base. That's a, It's a dumb word. And secondly, the point I make just uh, in, in addition to your comments is that the language that these people who aren't doing the sciences justice, as you perhaps have just if I can paraphrase it, you have just said, uh, they use language that you can sh surely um, deduce that they don't know enough about their subject, but they get away with writing stuff. And this agenda seemed to develop in my adult life, perhaps through uh, the universities when, say, Kelly, about 1990 onwards? Yes. About the, R the, times yes. The, the time the RMA was enacted? Yes, yes, yes. Well, the RMA tried to do too much. Um, far too much. It also did something which was quite dangerous. We were warned by the legal scholars of the time that enacting the RMA would negate all of the decisions made, court-tested decisions made under the old Town and Country Planning Act. And you don't throw out all those decisions in common law without taking a huge risk. And that's what we did. Now we're trying to scramble back and we're going to make the same mistake again. Well, my understanding of it was uh, the precautionary principle was 
front and centre of the RMA. So pretty much let's stop as much as you can because it's damaging or deleterious to the uh, to the to the environment. Um, and of course, you're right. Uh, Modernising anything after years and years of um, objections and input and 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 therefore output through the regulatory process can be turned on its head, and it just gives a uh, it just gives um, ice creams to and 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 lollies to the lawyers and and professionals changing those rules. I mean, it opens the can of worms. Is what I'm trying to say. Is that how you assess it? You're right. You're absolutely right. When I first came across the precautionary principle, it was a group of activists who came to see me when I was dean. Um, and they explained the precautionary principle to me. And I said, well, that means you don't trust science. You don't trust rationalism. You don't trust criticism. You don't trust those things. You just automatically take a negative stance to any progress because you can always find bad things about almost everything we do. That's why we are controlled by ourselves, our values, and the law. It's trying try to minimize the bad that we can do. But we must progress. We must make progress. And we cannot put impediments to progress. So that's my answer to the precautionary principle. And, you know, now in the in the council, I often see it. More recently, this week, we were talking uh, about things out here in Southland District. There were bridges being closed. So we had one set of reports from the council engineers that, you know, these ones need to be closed. ASAP can't work. Absolutely dangerous. And then we had a group of uh, just over a dozen people from that community come along, quite a few farmers. And this uh, one farmer, and it's in the public domain, so I have no qualms talking about it. He took every picture that the council engineers had put up, and he pointed out the issues in that. At this point, you've only looked at this side. This particular beam that looks like this is actually just moss. This beam that you say is weakened, I pulled my screwdriver through it. It didn't. It's almost like we don't trust mankind. We don't trust that evolution of ideas is how we have progressed over millennia. And now suddenly, you know, Everything needs to be legislated because without that, there is nothing. We, they almost need to save us from ourselves. Yes, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the other thing that happens is people in decision-making positions of power are swamped by detail. Uh, Muldoon had the right rule that give it to me on one side of an A4 page, everything. If he wanted more information, he'd ask for it. Yep. But your big ideas should be able to be put onto one side of an A4 page. If you give them 400 pages to read, they'll just be so confused. And the, the decisions will have to be, well, they're much delayed until people that actually can try and get on top of this wealth of information, most of it irrelevant. And you make decisions which are probably not in the interest of the people. And that's what Dodd often says, simplicity. And where is the simplicity? I am currently trying to wade through the IPCC 6 report. It's 2,400 pages. Right. And God Almighty, everything, they first put up something like, you know, this is what's going to happen to our coastlines. But till 2050, we have low confidence. After that, we have high confidence. It's like, come on. Make some sense here. I understand English. And if it 
you know, well over 2,000 pages to explain to me how dire a state humanity is in. There's something not right here. Well, they don't actually, uh, they brought back man's hockey stick again, which yes, has been yes. disproved both scientifically and in law and in court cases. Climate changes all the time. In the medieval warm period, the Chinese were able to grow citrus fruits far and further north than they do today. And the British were growing grapes right up to the Scottish border. Um, so it was warm. It was warmer than it is today. Yet on man's hockey stick, it looks flat, that the temperature was consistent. They attribute all of this change to carbon dioxide. So as you probably know, Don, I did some a different approach to the IPCC and the climatologists. I use mathematics to analyze the actual data, even though I suspect that the data had not been presented quite honestly enough for my purposes, but I just accepted it anyway. And I was able to show that almost universally, the um, rate of heating, rate of warming, declined. That's the rate, declined after 1985. It will peak in 2050, and the increase in temperature until then is minor, quite minor. Tides, uh, I mean sea level, will increase probably until 2090, but they will diminish in intensity and in height and rate until that time. So the threat of um, increasing a height of seawater of, of the seas is greatly exaggerated by the IPCC. Anyway, the next thing I, I did was to um, test the correlation between carbon dioxide and the rate of temperature and the temperature increases. This is central to their argument. They've got two arguments, one based on models, which is absolutely nonsense, and the second one, the correlation between the rise in CO2 and the rise in temperature. Well, since 1985, in most records, official records, the correlation is either weak or non-existent. The temperature has, uh, in the last five to seven years, stabilized, yet carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are still going up. So carbon dioxide can't be the driver, or if it is, it's only a minor driver. There are others, I won't go into them, drivers, but it's much more complicated than the IPCC. And I, frankly, they're wrong. But how do we convince them? My well, arguments are simply not listened to. There are thousands of good scientists saying exactly what I say, but they're not listened to. They're not part of the chorus that are singing doom and gloom. So, in fact, the, the, the people you're just talking about aren't part of the 97% consensus tribe. No. They're the opposite to that. And yeah. in fact, probably 55% of scientists who take an interest in this area express the same views as I do. There has been temperature rises. The, temp the climate, after all, the climate changes all the time. But um, whether CO2 is a driver has never been proved. In fact, if you look at the record, CO2 rises follow temperature rises. So how can a follower be a driver? It's like the guard at the back of the train is actually driving the train at the engine. Doesn't happen. 
What more can yes. I say? <laughs> so, yeah, so look, I, I should say to listeners, um, we, we've transitioned into talking about um, global warming and climate change far quicker than I inter- intended. We didn't hear about mm-hmm. Kelly's background. He's clearly proud of his background in early days, but we'll get on to, on to what he also does. He writes books. And one he's written is recently is a counterblast to man-made global warming uh, hypothesis, and it's available at Trosh, Tross Publishing. Um, tell me, why is the word blast spelt with an E? Okay, well, uh, King James wrote uh, a, a blast, as it was spelled at the time, B-L-A-S-T-E, a counterblast to tobacco, and he was ignored. He warned about the dangers of smoking way back there in the 17th century, early 17th century, and he was ignored. So here was a really well-reasoned argument, totally ignored by everybody. Smoking became common. Doctors recommended smoking to their uh, patients. Army chiefs gave smokes to their troops. And then we got the Surgeon General's report. And that, all of a sudden, you realized that smoking was actually dangerous to health and it could kill you. And so here was an example of a well-supported thing, smoking, being supported by all the authorities. The only dissent was really early on, and it was sound. Um, It was a counterblast. So what I'm saying now is we need a counterblast to the global warming myths. And so I deliberately spelt it the way that he spelt it in the old English or the Middle English way with an E. Perfect. And that, that's uh, satisfying me. That's good enough for me. But um, why um, why have you waited 30 years after I needed this uh, book to uh, to write it? You should have been far, far quicker in getting out of the blocks. I'm slow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hey, so we will go back to the book and the content of it and and your reasons for writing it have now become apparent. Uh, you're definitely concerned that the uh, information that's coming out uh, is is inaccurate, and yet New Zealand legislators and politicians and uh, acad- many academia and academia have bought into the into the what you would consider the misinformation, perhaps, campaign of the IPCC and others. Yes, well, many are forced into it. We've seen a re- recent episode when someone was forced to withdraw and was highly criticised for being critical. Now, that's quite wrong. People should be able to express themselves freely. If they're doing no harm, physical harm to people, we should be able to express our opinions. But uh, the leader of the party, the National Party, came down hard on uh, the Maureen, people. Yeah. I think there was more than one. and. Uh, so we see suppression of free speech. Well, that's my concern. We've got 120 MPs in the parliament. Maureen Pugh put up her case for a, for one, a one-line sentence and the media crucified her. Uh, and, and so have the listener attempt to, to crucify her. The thing is, she is the genuine MP that most New Zealanders, are, I think, are looking for. Someone who is willing to critically ask or ask critical questions. For instance... As I understand it, uh, the the man hockey stick was fallacious. It, they took out the medieval warm period to create that um, that uh, fear factor of a hockey stick uh, and the rapid rising. 
And secondly, I gather that there's no models that have, you know, the thousands of models of this consensus has done have ever been validated. They're all, all wrong, every one of them. And, and yet we're, and yet we're put, putting all our policy net zero 2050, uh, trying to diminish the effect of the non-effect of methane from our animals uh, uh, at great cost. All this stuff. What? Why is it that politicians are so gullible and not willing to be asking the critical questions? I mean, even David Seymour said, we will follow uh, what others do. Basically, we don't want to be leaders. We'll follow and we'll make sure we do no more than our trading partners. Now, that, that's the smartest yeah. comment of all, but it's it's still not right. It's still a cop-out. Still a cop-out. There have been plenty of examples of false philosophies ruling people. Um, eugenics, uh, racial superiority, uh, lots and lots of apparently scientific studies uh, being used to justify horrific uh, programs and policy. Eugenics was one of the worst, I think. And so so the nub of all that, um, Kelly, where the Dickens is it all coming from? Where is this? Uh... Power seekers. The people who want to rule us, the people who want us to be like the Chinese and submit. Um, and it's a, I think it's a quest for naked power that they get together as a group and, and chase this um, idea because they can get control by doing so. So, as I understand it, 70 years post-World War II, it doesn't take long for the brainwashing and the crony capitalism to sort of influence everything in terms of the policy settings if you are lazy and asleep at the wheel. Do you think we have been, well, I think we've been lazy and asleep at the wheel, but on the other side of it, in terms of your profession, so many people are getting their funding out of the same sort of regime. So, and how, do we, mm. <laughs> how do we? How do we? Uh, how do we? Uh, what's the circuit breaker? What's the circuit breaker here? Well, reality eventually will out. That's the big circuit breaker. Um, I. I don't know of any other. The uh, the interesting circuit breaker with the idea of slavery, which almost every uh, everybody believed in, was the fact that when they didn't employ slaves, they got higher productivity. Right? Why would you work hard for um, the master? with rotten living conditions, badly treated, bad food. Someone has speculated, I've forgotten who it was, how many times the master in Rome, how many, um, why, how much wine was polluted by piddle from the slaves, <laughs> getting back somehow or another. And to everybody's surprise, when you gave up slavery and, and employed people as, as sheer milkers, sheer croppers or whatever, Productivity shot through the roof because they're working for their family's benefit. 
the previous life. Um, the Yerman Fama system is a very good system indeed, the family farm that employs people rather than enslaves people. So reality, the reality that the new system, the non-slavery system was far more efficient, did stop slavery to a great extent. So reality would eventually. If, if, we, if our global warming just stays as it is at the moment, or even starts going down, the reality will come and everybody who said that we're heading to disaster will look a bit of a fool. They'll probably be dead by then, so they won't mind. But uh, it will be put down as yet another episode of a falsehood getting believed by far too many people. Yeah, that intriguing to me is that these people don't have a conscience. The people pushing this agenda don't have a conscience. They don't go red-faced. They don't feel... Uh, that they're um, if that even if they're wrong, they won't say they're wrong. Uh, it, it's no different to perhaps the recent years we've had the big COVID um, fiasco, as I call it, yeah. uh, and no one's saying they got it wrong. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of people willing to say they got it right, and there's nothing to see here now. Just move on. Um, some of us won't let that happen. Uh, yeah, that's a slightly different thing, but uh, in, in effect, it's the same sort of mind, mind management that uh, the regulator and the politicians are trying to do to their citizens. So we're getting the reality check and and getting people to have the gumption to say we're sorry will be a big deal. Do you think it'll ever happen? No, no. The, the COVID example is a very good one because it's so recent. And, and you realise, of course, that the government broke the law with the imposition that they did, uh, which should never have happened. But I mean, people who've climbed the slippery pole to get to the top know the things that you've got to do to stay up there. The pole is very slippery. And so that's where it comes from. They're far more interested in climbing the slippery pole than they are in doing good for the average person. Uh, in fact, the people who do good for the average person tend to be looked at rather, you know, dismissively. Skeptically even, skeptically even, I mean, and, and well, we're Everybody should be skeptical. I mean, we learned com comprehension as primary school children. That was to try and arm us to be able to really examine critically arguments and proposals. It was a very valuable skill. Many kids found that very hard. I used to enjoy it because I enjoy pulling these arguments to pieces. And I've done that ever since. But I don't think they teach it now, do they? They don't teach a, a critical analysis and comprehension at all. You've got to accept it. I mean, I, I don't think, think history is probably the one that's been most hard hit in the in the uh, social science in the liberal arts but science is under attack from a really i don't know i, I don't know quite what how to put my foot on it but it's a directed approach to try and get everybody to be um productive ignoring the fact that most of the great leaps forward have come either by accident or by rather unusual um, and individuals doing their own thing. You know, um, nowadays, 
uh, Faraday would never have got any grants for waving a magnet around an electric wire. Crazy. Would never, never, ever. Yet that was the origin of AC power, right? It transformed the world. Well, the, the I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. What are we teaching these days? We've seen so many uh, people in in academia even even within academia now talking about the fact that which way are new zealand educational standards going it almost seems to me that we've got as long as we have uh, i think there's three key things climate hysteria critical race theory and gender ideology ticked off new zealand schools seem to think that's a well-rounded education and self-directed learning now oh. how on earth can a kid direct his or her own learning. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's like I, I saw on, on YouTube about a person, a couple who were allowing their own child to determine its sexual, its gender, its gender. Yeah. Now I've got bad news for that kid. Every cell of his body is either XX or XY. If it's XY, she's a female. If it's XX, he's a male. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can dress up as a woman if you like, but you're the XX is still there. So uh, Adam Smith made the point in his first book, which I always refer to because nobody knows about it, but he was a moral philosopher as well as an economist, and he was a very good moral philosopher. He said that values have to be taught. Right, The things that will guide us to a good life, a productive life, and a successful life amongst our fellow people and allow what he later uh, postulated was a free market, um, privately owning democracy, that was only possible if we taught the right values to our kids. We can't let them decide for themselves. And, and you know, I make that comment a, a lot to people that the private property right is the most sacrosanct thing, and yet we're trying our level best to destroy it. We're trying to tell society that what you have can be theirs um, without any purchase, you just take. Uh, hence, we have rising crime, we have disrespect for the property of others. Uh, I've had it in my own property twice in the last 12 months, uh, after 66 years of not having any um, disrespect for our property. We've had a couple of invasions, so it, it, is a, it is a whole breaking down of the institutions that we value uh, in terms of our, uh, our values. Uh, and, and we're letting it happen right in front of our nose, Kelly. I mean, we've, this interview is wide ranging. We've, we started on climate, we're moving to this, we'll probably move back to climate, and it's great that it's free ranging. But we are in a bit of a, we're in a bit of a bugger's muddle, um, aren't we, at the moment? Yeah, well, under the COVID regulations, they own our noses. Not under our noses, it's in us. They're invading us by law and by force. Um, well, yes, I think that um, again, I go back to the idea that uh, this idea of freedom is quite, quite misunderstood by the modern generation. I was in a um, one of those sessions that they have for naughty kids, I used to be, you know, help out in, in social things. And a child had stolen from an elderly couple. And there was this meeting 
organized by social welfare as it was at the time, with since the child was of a certain race, there was a social worker present of a certain race. And that social worker said that if you're hungry, it is entirely proper that you take things to satisfy your hunger. And I told him, well, you're preaching the downfall of civilization there, which he didn't like. But that is the attitude in the social sciences to a great extent that was permeating our country. The young are being told that the end justifies the means, that if you're hungry, you're free to invade somebody else's private property and take it. So it's a it's a cancer which is present and which is spreading in our society. Your your idea of the private property right is fundamental to a modern democracy. We must have private property rights. So, if you look at uh, Antonio Gramsci's comment about the long march through the institutions, I think that was around 1920s in that in that era. You'd say a hundred years on. The Marxists have won for the moment. The Marxists have always won, right from Rousseau. Now, Rousseau was um, despised and defeated by every thinking, every principal thinking person at the time. His works should have been ignored and forgotten, but they permeate our education system. The idea that the state of nature, people in the state of nature were perfect, with no relationship to anybody else, they were perfect. Civilization, the association into groups, was a, a downfall. It was sort of Garden of Eden stuff. And of course, that's an absolute nonsense. A person who is alone in the wild will die pretty quickly. Um, but Rousseau said, no, civilization has been a real downfall for humankind. And the idea that people are little flowers and should be left themselves to develop into beautiful flowering bushes is nonsense, absolute nonsense, but it permeates educational philosophy. The, the far better description is one given by a famous, not so famous person, that every year we are invaded by barbarians. The barbarians are our children. And they have to learn how to be satisfied, to be civilized. We have to teach them how to be civilized. Which goes back to Adam Smith again, exactly what he said. Now, we're not doing that. At one school, I used to be very heavily involved in education, and one school I was chairman of, uh, emerging schools, the education department came out and tried to evoke from us agreement to the values, as they called them, that they were proposing. Now, I didn't say anything because it wasn't my place as a chairman to say anything, but value should come from the community. It should come from the family. It's not for a school to impose values. A school can have rules, and that's fine, but they should not impose values. How's that? That's not bad, Kelly. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, we had Tom DeWeese talk about the need for the community to basically take back control of, of their community and the need to set up what he called freedom pods. Now, I think there's a lot in that and what you have said. Uh, it is about uh, the community to take back ownership. Uh, from the central planners 
And hopefully, hopefully that's going to, the renaissance is underway, hopefully. Well, there's a, a general belief that capitalism is about greed. Now, that's that's wrong. Capitalism is about taking personal responsibility. But personal responsibility means not only your selfish self, but it means looking after your family, your community, your town, your country, the world. In other words, the focus of power should be the individual. Now we're trans transmitting the idea that the focus of power is the elite, the government, especially the bureaucrats who carefully protect themselves by A, being massively common, there are a lot of them, and B, they use contractors to protect their backs. If anything goes wrong, they can blame the contractors. And private enterprise is always useless, isn't it? It makes all these errors. You know, they're, they're in private enterprise. So the bureaucrats are protected from any reprisal, any uh, idea that we can control them. And they're probably a worse force for this evil we're talking about than the parliament itself. Because parliament is served by the bureaucrats, and the bureaucrats really have control and are protected. So that's a radical idea, isn't it? That's a radical. It's a radical idea, all right. I've, I said in jest a few weeks ago, we should just build, build a wall, Donald, uh, around about across the uh, Hutt Valley, across to the other side, and that'll do. And uh, we might all be happy. But on the other side of it, I, I understand enough about commerce to sort of say that all these people who do get paid out of your taxes do demand, they do consume, they do speculate. And so they do add to an economy. Uh, but well, is the, eco is the economy... Economies are in the attitude uh, with productivity gains. Ah, I was going to say, but <laughs> oh, they ne they never replace anything that they consume, do they? No, that's right. Nor do they. Their their work is focused on what they do, which is paper shuffling. They don't get out there and dig ditches. They don't get out there and milk cows. They don't get out there and make ball bearings or whatever. In other words, they're not in an area where productivity can be demonstrated and improved because you can get better farming, you can get better ball bearing systems, you can get better ditch, ditch diggings. All of these things add to wealth and they're not adding to wealth. They are part of the economy for sure, but they're not the wealth generating part of the economy. The wealth generating part of the economy, unfortunately, is private enterprise. Period. Now Period. Yeah. Yes, both of you have spoken about private enterprise and uh, protecting the right to private property. Earlier this week, I think, yeah, Monday or Tuesday, there was this online Zoom I attended. And yeah, I know I must have rocks in my head, but this was hosted by Greenpeace. It was called Our Methane Moment. So there were four speakers, a couple more facilitators, and uh, I think Don told me there was just a dozen people. So one of those was yours truly. And I was caught by this line, this uh, gentleman was there and he runs this organization called All, Aotearoa Liberation League. And uh, I'm probably massacring what he said, but he went something on the lines of that we need to humble ourselves. We need to get rid of this idea that all of us can be millionaires or have exclusive access to vast parcels of land. We need to get rid of this idea of individualism and defer to the community. 
I was blown away. This was a young man. He could be no more than 30, I'd say. And the way he said it, he, he truly believed in it. But this is what our youth think today. Well, the trouble is that sort of idea is romantically attractive, superficially attractive. It's Rousseau, it's Marx, both of whom were desperately wrong because we're not like that. As E.O. Wilson said, communism is a beautiful idea, but it's only for the, for the other species. It's not for humans. We're not like that. <laughs> but this, this is what, you know, speaking in a... Sorry? This is what they're talking of in a lecture about methane and its issues. So from methane, they come to private property rights. And from there, they come to the rights of the collective. And I'm like, where is this going? Talk about science. Well, um, Marx wrote a letter during when the Paris Commune had was surrounded by the Prussians in the uh, Prussian War, where they conquered France. And Paris was isolated, and people had to eat elephants and rats and so on. They were so hungry. And um, Marx wrote a letter to them saying, you're mad, you're not taking over the banking system. He advocated taking over the banking system. Society maintained itself in Paris at the time. It functioned. They might have been eating elephants, but they were still going to work and doing all the things. They knew, and they said to Marx, if we take over the banking system, Paris will fall. Actually, not only to the Prussians, but it will fall from civilization. So, I mean, there are people who do the right thing and think sensibly, even against the nonsense that Marx and Rousseau spoke and wrote about. So we hope there are enough sensible people. But we're distracted by the joys of television. You know, Emily in Paris, how wonderful that is, and everybody <laughs> having a good time in Paris. We're just not realising that this cancer is creeping up on us. Comfortably numb, I call it, Kelly. Comfortably yeah, numb. Exactly. And distracted and amused and, you know, I mean, help us. Just please help us. We are heading for disaster. We are inhibiting the ways that we can um, solve the problems that we face. There, there are, we have always solved the problems that we have confronted us in the past. At the moment, the petrol engine is improving in efficiency so fast, I think it's 5% improvement every year since, 19, uh, since 2018, that now they're really competitive. You can get a 1,000cc motor car that performs like a 2,000cc motor car. And EVs are looking no, nowhere near as attractive as they do with these super efficient little petrol engines. Um, that, that's a response to a challenge which a free society will undertake. But the government is trying to do um, control. Interestingly, the EV movement was really hammered when the Chinese re reduced the um, subsidies on EV vehicles. The price of lithium fell enormously because the Chinese gave up buying EVs. <laughs> they weren't getting free money. What they thought was free money. Money is never free. Never free. And interestingly, I think the price of lithium has gone through the well, up significantly in recent months. And of course, you've got little old New Zealand 
absolutely giving privilege and subsidy to uh, EV owners uh, through tax incentives, so tax subsidies effectively from you and me or those of us that have utes, and they don't even pay road user charges. So all the other things that are in the mix and uh, the, the virtuous belief that EVs are the saviour because of why, uh, because of change in the temperature, uh, uh, there's a whole lot of things come into climate change. And see, part of our discussion is that we try not to talk about climate all the time, but it's so embedded in everything we are facing that the, the legislation, legislation is always back to um, climate change and the effect and using RCP 8.5 or something like that. And I wrote some notes today and I said, because uh, I want to go back to methane in a minute, efficient should, should be the dri- efficiency should be the driver not legislation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's one of the subjects of my next book, or one of my next books, is actually the, the drivers of civilization, how we, we came to be so immensely rich. Now, everyone, even the poorest people, are immensely rich. I'll tell you how poor we are here in Christchurch. I was at the new cafe where the city mission has an excellent new cafe. I shouldn't be giving any adverts, but when you're in Christchurch, you can pop around, around to the City Mission Cafe. Good food and coffee is $3 a cup. So anyway, oh. the the poor of the country, the poor of the city were coming to get their um, food bags and food parcels. They were all in privately owned motor vehicles. Um, ouch. That's that's a king hit, Kelly. That's a king hit. Uh, gosh, there was a queue, a... a queue, a long, long queue of vehicles queuing up. Oh, uh, free food. Well, intriguing how that plays out. I've never um, quite got over the day that I saw a person in a local supermarket get out of a taxi in her pajamas with her fluffy. Um, um, slippers on and go in and get food and the taxi waited with its motor running while she was in there it, it i just if everyone's about efficiency um that wasn't the most efficient use of time and energy i've ever seen anyway we should move back to uh climate change for a moment uh again and so what i don't understand and you may have an opinion on this we're at 410 parts per million co2 co2 is the fertilizer of life more of it's good for a greening world how much of and you know it's come up, raised from about two fifty over the last so many years. I'm not sure how many about it. Is it hundred years? And and yet everyone blames the use of fossil fuels for its rising uh, rather than natural sort of uh, means. But that's not true, as I understand it. And you can correct me, Kelly. Three percent of the four hundred and ten parts per million is is can be attributable to mankind's use of fossil fuels. That's true. So 12 parts per million out of 410. And we are we are about to spend trillions as a world trying to break this system of the current way we enjoy life down uh, and have net zero 2050 programs. We're trying to say ruminant agriculture has got to be changed. We've got to eat crickets and, uh, and bugs because uh, animal agriculture is no good. It's all, it's all just a, a fairy tale, isn't it? Yes, well, regarding animal agriculture, they're good. I'd like them to go up to some of the sheep farmers 
farming areas in the Mackenzie country up the hills there and try and grow cabbage and see how they'd get on. Yeah, it, use that land for anything other than sheep. <laughs> no, no, and, and and the reason the plains are now covered with a lot of um, black and whites or, or Jersey cows um, is because they were better at, oh, yeah. uh, at doing stuff. And, and of course, the meat industry let itself down by not being uh, responsive. Uh, and of course, the dairy industry was smarter uh, than us for a period. And I stayed sheep farming till the end of my farming time. But it, the, the blame that's gone now onto dairying because it's overusing the the, the land and the water, uh, uh, the fact that the, the sheep and beef farmers have been sort of moved a bit further back in most areas makes no sense to me apart from the, the market forces, and that's fine. But so so that's the part that does make sense. Market forces said, let's do that. And now we've got the nonsense of planting pine trees on perfectly good, even, even dairyable land is being planted in our region. Yes, I know. That's an absolute disaster. Now, the so, reason for it is, what do you, carbon dioxide, when I started my career, people were worried that our carbon dioxide level in the um, atmosphere was getting too low and would get close to photosynthetic extinction. And there was work done showing that on hot days, hot still days, lack of CO2 was the major cause for the cessation of growth in food crops. Right? New Zealand, fortunately, is windy, and so we don't suffer from that problem. But much of Asia actually does have long periods of stillness with hot days. And so the lack of CO2 was inhibiting the growth of cereals. Then we had, after that, we had the plunge into the little into the ice age, which everybody was certain was going to come. That was in the 1980s. And uh, panics all round about what we were going to do. There was a wonderful film showed um, everybody in North America going down, living happily in Mexico. I don't know what the Mexican people would say about an influx of a huge number of United States citizens. But anyway, it was a film that's still worth showing to people because this was yet another popular and serious concern, you know, had this chicken stuff that uh, existed in my lifetime. Then you got it swung. All the climatologists started saying, "Oh no, no, it's not going to be a nice age after all." We were wrong. They didn't say we were wrong. They never said they were wrong, and they started promoting this new, new uh, climate emergency as the latest work. We're in the climate emergency. Well, you look around yourself. Where's the emergency? You know. <laughs> We, we have had a river of rain come down on the, an atmospheric river of rain come down. <laughs> that happens. That's, that's weather. That happens every few years. We have that. It was sort of like the monsoon that happens every year over in Asia. But they got a thumping. And so it, it was sad. It was bad. But I can remember episodes like that, very severe droughts in North Otago and so on, bad, bad storms like the Lahini storm. The 19, what was the 1975 storm here in Christchurch was really bad, and so on. We've had extreme weather events all the time. They're declining in frequency. They're not getting worse. Analysis of the, of the record showed that universally. You get these um, activists saying that we're going to get more and more um, 
storm events and so on as the climate warms up. Well, that's not true. And they will not justify it with facts. They will not show you any of the data that exists. It's like picking 1850 as the start of the um Bad yeah. why, why 1850? The reason why 1850 was the Americans suddenly discovered meteorology, um, a subject that was developed by the British in Fitzgerald. And so they have records, reliable records. Other countries have records much earlier than that, and I've dug them up. I still have to get the 17th century ones from Britain because evidently they had established a meteorological office in about 1610, which lasted for about 80 years. And they took records. After all, Galileo invented the fluid responsive thermometer years before. We've had that technology for a long time. Where are the records? I managed to drag up the Swedish records because the Swedish are honest. You know, they do give you their records and they do discuss what adjustments they make and give you the original records, which is really, really a good thing to do. But everybody else, Fiddles away with the records and presents those. So, of course, you really don't know how valid those records are. The other thing is, of course, that when meteorology started in the 1850s, if you like, there were very few stations, France, Britain, America. And since then, more and more have added on until you can get the graph and it, it goes up exponentially almost to the present day. Well, that's a mixed data set. You've got temperate countries starting off. What was added on were tropical countries and then Arctic and Antarctic. So you can't mix up those data because it's just nonsense to do so. You have to analyse it a completely different way. And when you do try and unthread that heterogeneity, as it's called, then you get a different picture to the one that is common today. Okay, that's a big rant for you. Sorry about that. But uh... oh, that, that's all good knowledge. Uh, and, and interestingly, um, I think in the old days, uh, you know, the period you've just talked about, the coverage clearly was uh, limited to certain areas. It couldn't have covered New Zealand. It couldn't have covered um, South America. Uh, it couldn't have covered so much of Africa. Uh, so talking about 1850 uh, to, to now is a, is a bit crazy. I mean, they, they link it into industrialization, but we've just told listeners that uh, as our, our understanding that it's only 3% of 410 parts per million is mankind's influence on carbon dioxide. And we've also said effectively carbon dioxide really isn't a huge thermometer uh, for, or cause for temperature rise on the earth. So, Again, we just go back to this. It seems like it seems like a fairy tale, uh, a nursery rhyme, a, a a bad dream, and yet we're about to spend trillions on remedy. So it's crony capitalists pushing this. What is it? Yes, the people have to believe in something, right? You and oh. I believe in private enterprise. Um, we believe in private property rights. We believe in open government. We believe in those things, but people like something more juicy, more emotionally satisfying, you know, and to blame others for the predicament you're in is a wonderful thing if you can get others to agree with you. So, of course, the communists always managed to convince the unemployed who didn't own anything that communism was a right thing. 
I mean, I don't know if people know this, but the communists in Russia in the last free election before the communists took over, they got 24% of the vote. That was their best result, 24%. The vast majority of Russians didn't want communism, but they got mm. it. Right. Well, it sort of reminds us of the 2017 election a little bit in this country where uh, the <laughs> a party that didn't get the majority vote wasn't allowed to um, was allowed to form government. And uh, the majority um, vote winner wasn't the one that formed the government. But it's interesting, Kelly, I had this said to me probably in the early 2000s that the old unionists in New Zealand, uh, the old style placard waving, shovel leaning unionists uh, that and, and the meat industry activists that were around in the pre-85 period when Roger Douglas came to power and altered with, with Longie and altered all the, the labour laws and uh, farmers' privileges and things, that th those old style unionists went to school. They went and got university degrees. They came out as planners and, and the like. And they also convinced... Uh, governments of the time that we should have a, a referendum on how we govern this country. And of course, MMP was adopted by 1996. And the rest is history. Uh, the unionists were back in control. Is that is that a fair comment? I, I mean, I've never challenged it, but it sounds, sounds plausible. Yes. Well, I remind people that MMP or its predecessor was the means by which Hitler got to power. Is that what you want? It's exactly what I was wanting to lead to. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> no leading questions from Don. Uh, uh, fantastic. So look, yeah, explain. Have you got any more uh, ability to sort of flesh that out a bit more and how that happened? Well, yes. Um, generally, the, uh, the government of the time, the Weimar Republic, did very naughty things. They in induced two things that, that were, were dear to the heart of the German people, or at least they affected the German people really badly. The loss of the First World War was due to a stab in the back. This was before Hitler. Mm. And that it was um, the economy was ruined so that they couldn't fight as effectively and so they had to have an armistice. And the second thing was, in order to pay for all the nonsense that they were doing, they it deliberately inflated the economy and they got an, an, an automatic devaluation of currency that, I mean, it was amazing. Like There are photographs of people sweeping the streets up with banknotes, just getting rid of the banknotes. You had to have a barrow full of banknotes in order to buy a loaf of bread. This was all the government's doing. Right? So here they were sowing the seeds for Nazism who had a consistent policy that aligned with Germanic beliefs in socialism, in nationalism, in racism, and in the power of the German people to be the rulers of the world. So it was extremely attractive in many ways. The communists were the only ones who really opposed it, but they only appealed to the unemployed, and they didn't have the money to maintain a decent publicity and information campaign. So they went the way of, or the other parties eventually, the Jews were blamed for, international Jewry was blamed for 
the stab in the back that led to the defeat in the First World War. And there was a very strange belief, which is creeping over us again, which you haven't mentioned, that Germany should be completely self-sufficient in everything, Utahi. And this belief meant that if Germany was deficient in something, say oil, you go and take it from your neighbours because the end justifies the means. So that was a justification for taking over the Rhineland, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, France. And when they took over these countries, all except for Austria, of course, they raped them. They took all of the possessions, all of the trains, planes, cars, wheat, everything, and transported it back so that Germany could be self-sufficient. That's a natural result of that kind of socialism. Fascism in German hands was not what people think it was. It was socialism. It was a particularly brutal form of socialism. And because the Germans were the kings, the top notch, everybody else had to, were, were free, fair game for exploitation. That's why Poland and Russia were all invaded in order to make Germany self-sufficient in resources. We're going back to that idea of mercantilism, it used to be called, mm -hmm. that uh, we're going to be anti-free trade. We're going back to protecting our patch. Now, that's crazy, absolutely crazy. We haven't flourished under free trade, and we will continue to flourish under free trade if we do it. But barriers, trade barriers are being erected all around the world. Yes, and I, yeah, I have, um, I feel guilty. I was big on free trade, still am, of course, just like you, Kelly. But um, I never understood that at the time I was involved in all this sort of stuff, uh, the globalist agenda. And I am um, hot uh, and, and proud to have uh, been a sovereign nation uh, rather than one that's controlled by edicts from uh, perhaps Davos or Geneva or somewhere. Oh, and so uh, free trade and sovereignty are vital for New Zealand. Yes. And anyone that tries, tries to break down those institutions um, is not my friend. So yes. it's it's interesting. And linking in all of that, uh, I just wonder if you can make comment, if you know anything about the Fabian Society uh, and how that sort of had its uh, ethos presented through the late 1800s, early 1900s. And if it still exists today, we have a friend who's big on talking about the wolf in sheep's clothing. and. Uh, Maybe you've got an opinion on, on yeah. that club. Well, if we, if we go back to the origins of social welfare, the first country to introduce it was not New Zealand. We were very late on the scene. It was Germany. And the right. He had three principal actions, old age pensions, uh, in, insurance, worker insurance, and one other. <laughs> what else was that? Work insurance old age pensions and the health insurance, right? Health, mm -hmm. the three main pillars of social welfare. Now he was an arch conservative. He wanted no change in the power structure in Germany. He supported um, the royalty and he supported the existing social order, but he brought those things in and it transformed Germany. It made Germany a very attractive place to live and work and increase productivity enormously. So that start was actually done by an arch-conservative. 
And it wasn't done by the Fabian Society, right? So the Fabian Society, I think they were a bunch of middle-class, goody-goody, the same people who, who powered up communism, by the way. Mm-hmm. Communism was not funded by the poor because they were poor. It had to be funded by the middle class, especially in Paris. So the emigres uh, who were rich in Paris funded Marx in Switzerland. And the Germans stupidly made the biggest mistake probably in history of allowing Marx to progress through hostile Germany to land up in Leningrad and start his revolution. I mean, crazy stuff, really. Um, But again, the Fabian Society is, I I always think it's sort of like an afternoon tea society in some ways, gentle people talking about gentle things. Life is brutal if you're not careful. And they, they could be used by evil intent, intended people for evil ends. And they, they were the soft uh, side of, of, of socialism. And the power brokers behind were able to use them to say, you know, we're, we're kind and nice and so on. <laughs> so that's what I think of baby and socialism. I was brought up a socialist. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was... Um, in a strongly socialist um, home. And I was actually an activist in the Labour Party. That's right. Yeah. But I left the Labour Party when I realised that their economic policies were dreadful. This was in the Kirk era when they introduced something really I couldn't understand at all, maximum retail price. You won't, I don't know if you know about this or re- realise, but Everybody had to relabel their goods with a maximum retail price on it. So competition went out the, out the window. There was no, no driver to make your goods better and cheaper. You just went oh, back and charged the maximum retail price. And to set the maximum retail price, everybody, every industry group put the, a really cheeky high price on everything. So it was extremely destructive to the environment, to, to the economy. And Jasper, just in that period, which was around, uh, I'm guessing, 1972-ish, um, we actually did have a car manufacturing um, business in New Zealand, or two or three of them. But one that we did, we we made our own, was called a Trekker, and it was a bit like a Land Rover. It didn't last very long. It wasn't it wasn't a success. But that's the sort of stuff that happened when you can have controlled economies. You put out rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Well, television sets used to be assembled in Japan, disassembled, put into a pack, sent to New Zealand and reassembled. <laughs> Talk well, about efficiency. I'm not thinking that's exactly what happened. We you know what? There was a big, big trade in Toyota car cases. Do you remember that? Yep. The cars were disassembled, put into car cases, sent out to New Zealand and reassembled. And the car cases were highly sought after because it was so useful on farms and sheep. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but rec- uh, remember when you said, you know, Fabian society, you think of them as uh, gently, gently afternoon tea party sort of guys. It contrasts with, I think it was Tennyson who said, nature read in tooth and claw that, that the real world is quite different. But as you guys were chatting, I was trying to look up the movie that you mentioned. Is it possibly this one, uh, Kelly, The Day After Tomorrow? 
2004. It depicts fictional catastrophic climate effects in a series of extreme weather events that ushered in global cooling, leading to the American president evacuating southern states to Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, so, Mexico. <laughs> I just wonder whether the Mexicans really would welcome 200 million people then coming and out. One can imagine the backdrop of this. Stephen uh, Schneider, who was, uh, I think he passed about a decade ago, 2010, major contributor to IPCC, just looking through his body of work in uh, in the late 1970s, he wrote this book called The Genesis Strategy. And in this, Stephen Schneider, who wrote about the fact that the last 15,000 years have been unusually warm when compared to the global temperature for the last 150,000 this warm period is passing. Temperatures on the whole will get cooler. For example, in the last 100 years, mid-latitude air temperatures peaked in the 1940s and have been cooling ever since. So the same you know, lead writer for the IPCC followed it up eight years later with global warming. Stephen Schneider again. So you wonder how these academics, these people who have passed on, but their legacy lives on, how they reconcile their own complete switchovers from one end to the other? I can't answer that. I don't know how they get away with it, which is what they're talking about. Mm. Um, I mean, the global norm for a temperature on Earth is about five or six degrees warmer than it is at the present time. So we, we can easily expect it to warm up to normal. But we live in a cold period. Very unusually, it's only happened three times before, two times before, we have ice at the poles. Mm. Normally, the Antarctica grows trees. That's why there are coal seams down there, the fossil trees. And uh, animals were down there. We know that. Mm. So we're living in a very unusual period, and we, we really don't know what's going to happen. We could go back into another ice age. We could warm up. We could stay as we are. But I would wish that these experts would admit the lack of ability to predict the future is a feature of, of the future. We don't know what's going to happen. I think we're going to warm a little bit, and then I don't know what's going to happen. I suspect we'll go into another ice age, little ice age, but we don't know. Well, we don't know. Just going back to uh, the Lister article that was written by uh, Andrea Graves, I think her name is, and was informed and fact-checked by Professor Tim Nash, uh, a, paleonto, a paleoclimatologist at Antarctic Research Center at VUW. It says here, the highest ever CO2 level found in ice core bubbles is 300 parts per million during an interglacial period, and it was around 180 ppm during the ice ages. Now it's 414, a level not nearly seen for 4 million years. But then you go down a bit further. Looking uh, back even further, CO2 was even higher, up to a 1,000 parts per million, due to natural ge geological processes, such as a massive volcanic activity uh, eruption. Um, there are no natural causes that can explain the current warming. I mean, it's just, you can't make this stuff up. I'm, I'm a layman, uh, uh, Cal Kelly, and this is just, as my father would call it, tripe. Yes, it is tripe. You saw that I, I wrote a rebuttal of support, but uh, and I, I gave some re reconstructions, not using ice bubbles, because there may be something going on with the physics in ice bubbles that regulates the carbon dioxide content, and we don't know. 
that we do know from other proxies, including much more reliable ones, and indeed from Greenland ice cores, that the CO2 has been very much higher in the past. Our plants evolved at a time when CO2 levels were high. Much higher. And they're now CO2 starved. That's why they respond so well to added CO2. Talk to any glasshouse owner who pumps CO2 in and he gets much better growth. Our plants are deprived worldwide at the moment of CO2, the essential nutrient. So far from more CO2 being bad from the plant's point of view, it's luxury. It's great. It, it is, it, and, and apparently if you look at uh, satellite images of the world, it is greening in the fringes where there was desert, desertification before. Sorry, that word didn't come out right. Interestingly, we need to get onto methane just before we um, get to the end, and we haven't even talked about your commercialization of your, your, your products that I do want to get to. William Happer and William Van Weingarten have said that their research shows in physics that methane cannot have anything but the most minor effect as a greenhouse gas. The people that are saying effectively that it does have uh, an effect are saying that their testing has been done in isolation rather than in the real atmospheric conditions of the world. What say you about uh, the Happer and Van Wingarden um, hypothesis? It's the same argument used against CO2. Increase of CO2 as an infrared absorber is subject to the Lambert-Beer law. In other words, as the CO2 level goes up, the ability to absorb more energy decreases. So you get a curve. I mean, this is not live, but you know what the curve looks like. Yes, yes. Curves are common in nature. Straight lines are not. And one of the major failures that the climatologists do is fitting straight lines to everything. You can't do that. That is wrong. If you fit the proper function, the curves, you find that um, the gases like methane and CO2 become saturated. They can't absorb any more energy. It follows the Lambert beer law. So they're right. In real life, you can see this happening in the climate. That, uh, and in any case, there's too little CO2 to have much effect. It's only a tiny amount in the atmosphere. Methane is even worse. <laughs> you know, what? it's water, man, it's water. <laughs> that, that is very important. But if you've been out in the desert where the air is free from much water, it's as hot as anything because the sun's radiation comes down in the daytime. And at night, it's freezing cold. When I first went out in the desert, the first expedition I did, they gave us these heavy woolen sleeping bags. And I wondered, I thought, you know, a blanket would do, wouldn't it? Boy, I was grateful for that sleeping bag because it got freezing at night. Absolutely. And so um, it's interesting how we've been browbeaten as a sector. So I'm in the farming sector, browbeaten. I sensed there was something wrong when uh, I led the FART rallies in 20. 20- 03 and it culminated with the tractor going up the steps of parliament i sensed there was something wrong uh but i wasn't sure wasn't sure that the world wasn't frying because man's hockey stick was um sort of quite telling so i lived in that sort of fear that uh i'm perhaps defending something i can't defend for much longer until i realized that man had corrupted the data 
And then in 2018, I found that uh, Van Wingarden and um, and William Harper came out with these papers, and others had done it before, actually, if you'd researched it, to show that the effect of anything... Well, so we've been living a litany of lies, an orchestrated litany of lies in New Zealand uh, for 20 years. And yet we've still got a Minister for Climate Change hell-bent on trying to make farmers do something about their animal emissions. And I know it stands outside the uh, Paris, uh, uh, oh, sorry, the net zero 2050 target, sorry. Yep. But but it's it's still a calm job. And we've got farmer leaders falling for it that we need to do something. Now, I don't say I've got the mortgage on intelligence, Kelly, but I love hearing um, say, well, I clearly don't have, I love hearing people like you saying that it is rubbish. So how can we get how can we get off this consensus um, uh, paradigm that everyone thinks is right when it clearly is fallacious and it's clearly destabilizing the good efforts of farmers and it's it's destabilizing uh, our economy potentially. Oh really when, when are we going to get off this climate drug and get back to real stuff? Well, in the past, there were peasant riots and things, chopping heads off kings. I don't advocate that now, but something like that probably has to happen. But There has to be a popular uprising um, of some kind or another. At the moment, National and Labour are both singing from the same song sheet. So, um, you know, that's, that's so sad. I became aware of this very early on when I thought, I'm not very good at activism. I tend to retreat away from things I don't like, like the Labour Party. Uh, I shouldn't say that, should I? But in 74, I thought that Kirk wasn't up to the job. He, and, um, and the economic policy they had was stupid. The defence policy they had was foolishness in the extreme. But um, anyway... So I started working after I did it. I used to have a lot of consultancies overseas and I did a consultancy in Japan and I noticed that they were using cow feces to dissolve into water, which they use for aeroponics. They had about 18 of these ginormous establishments in different parts of Japan using aeroponics. Now, for your listener, that is using water-containing nutrients that sprays onto plants that aren't in water and they're not on, in soil. And the plants are wired up so that they can call for the spray whenever they need it. And they grew the most delicious, um, non-organic, diet <laughs> strawberries, lettuces, onions, spring onions, all, all of that stuff. Even in the middle of winter, they were busy doing this. But this outfit were... Uh, organic registered. So they were using cowpoo as their source of nutrients. And the cowpoo didn't smell. And I thought that was odd. They deliberately, and I asked how they did it, and they gave, gave, told me about this plant extract that they used. So they also had a patent application for its use as a deodorant for humans and dogs. I take the smell away from dogs and humans. So I, I, I came back Christ to, to New Zealand, and I started, I uh, got some of this stuff, and I started playing around with it, because I, I had worked out that if it was 
the smell is produced by microorganisms. So that substance must be inhibiting the microorganisms. Right? If it was inhibiting microorganisms in the feces, I wrote to them and said, uh, what, oh, no, I actually tasted some. Some of their milk, it was sweet, good milk. And they had higher growth rates in their cattle when they were using this stuff. So I did a lot of experiments and we um, actually isolated the active. We know what it is. It's manufactured. It's approved in most countries except New Zealand for use in farming. So we're going to have a battle for whether to get established in New Zealand. We're thinking of actually going to America where it is uh, okay to be used. It's, it's recognized as safe, generally recognized as GRS as it's called. Uh, and we did uh, field experiments, but using my training was in human physiology. So I used hum uh, f human physiology techniques on the animals. I didn't use those color things that they used or metabolic chambers. I used a Douglas bag, which basically was a mask over the animal's face that blew up a, a gas impermeable balloon. And I took it away and analyzed it. We got up to 90% reduction in methane with a uh, small dose uh, of drenched in sheep, and um, it lasted four days. So this looked practical. We the, the dosage for a cow would be around about 15 milligrams. Uh, the LD50 is way, way, way above that. It's very safe stuff. In fact, it's a natural product. You have it inside you. You just don't have enough. The cows have it inside them. They don't have it in the right place. It has to go into the rumen, where it stops the methanogens producing methane. And it's more energy for the cow. You get more milk, better milk, and greater growth. And so that's the... That that's the key, isn't it? Uh, if there's something that can make the animal more efficient, yep. um, not less efficient, then uh, farmers will gravitate to it. It certainly doesn't need to be legislated. Uh, no, but my point is, we've always solved our problems in the past. Yes, yes. And so... And this uh, is a problem. And, and I hope that people will remember that in actual fact, it's making the car more efficient. It's not solving the methane problem because there is no methane problem. Exactly. exactly. 100%. And so your commercialized um, uh, list here is is significant, and we haven't got time to go through them all. But one that did intrigue me, and it's when I first met you, uh, Kelly, was you were big on uh, uh, Jerusalem artichokes and, 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 try, and trying to get inulin out of those uh, artichokes and creating the flour. And uh, it was good for diabetics, was it, from memory? Yeah, yeah. Given up that. Given up. Uh, too hard. Too hard. The... What we have found is that in deer and sheep, it reduces um, methane production. Uh, the volume of feces diminishes. The growth rate in, improves. The, the improvement, the, the uh, sheep that we treated got far higher prices at auction. They just looked magnificent. They were bigger, they were glossier, they were, you know, and... Uh, I think the, the control sheep got $90 on the hoof and the feeded sheep got 140 Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's what good stuff. 
And so good stuff. It's, it's a, they're thinking of perhaps having a, a, a feed that has Jerusalem artichoke chaff or whatever. Because if it's if it's chaffed and aged, the animals love it. We know that by cattle, horses, cats, dogs, and all will eat stuff quite readily. And we put our secret ingredient in, so we get a double hit at methane and growth. Right. Combined, and it should be cheap and easy. The price per treatment is very low because we use very little of the active ingredient. You don't need much. But it has to be into the room. You have it in you now, the stuff. Believe right. <laughs> oh, well, it's all good to know that I'm made of some good stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, there's lots of other Not things. Enough. In this, Not enough. This, <laughs> this massive list you've got, you've called, you've got another product called Flora Flower and Flora Plus. And um, they, they were over in Australia. I couldn't get it done here. What it was was wood waste that we treated. Um, by steam explosion to um, make into uh, a very strong material, a, plas a plasticized wood, but it was actually all, all entirely wood waste. Okay. Uh, it's, been, it's been done in, in America at the moment too, but that I have no commercial interest in that anymore. And another one I one recall. Really with... The one that had the greatest potential was the potentiation technology, which led to potential potentiated pollen, which your some of your more elderly, more like me, um, listeners will probably remember. It was very popular. I think we were the first to a million dollars in that uh, profit in, in, with that product. My, my it goodness. It took off like a lightning. Uh, we eventually paid back, I think it was, uh, was it 1,400% to the investors. It's just an amazing. Wow. Success story ruined by a couple of Aucklanders, but we aren't saying nasty about Aucklanders at this stage. <laughs> well, they're our listeners, so please be nice. Come on, be nice. Uh, interestingly, going back even further uh, in your list, you talked about these ESG monitors and things. Oh, yeah. That's when I was young. Yeah. And I, as, a, as a hobby, I did electronics. And uh, I was teaching physiology at the time. And we needed to be able to measure the ECG and the other vital components of activity, such as um, the ventilation, the breaths, under exercise. The, the mentor at the time was you could not take active ECGs. You had to lie down on a thing, get wired up, head and ankles and so on, and then wrists and ankles, and, uh, and you had to lie still because the muscle noise uh, swamped the signal from the heart. Any activity would ruin the, the signal. But I found you, it was easy solution to that. And uh, I designed this machine that gave us active ECG and to it I added on a machine to analyze the number of breaths and uh, depth of breath and composition. So we had this going. I, I did. I, I wasn't commercially focused at all at that stage, and I offered it all to the hospitals, and only in the Carver Hospital took it up. Oh, uh, see, it just shows you the world leaders. Yep. yep. And um, the we were approached by one of the medical salesmen because we we bought medical gear, and he saw us doing this with I think it was the uh, eight 
team that we helped train using my equipment so that they could manage to measure the uh, their performance under extreme exercise, which is right. what rowing is. You yeah. couldn't do that with ordinary gear. And he looked at that and said, oh, that's interesting. What do you got there? And I said, oh, it's a bit of a green box that I made up. He says, do you sell it? And I said, oh, I suppose we could. Because they were selling beta, uh, oh. um, deep ray equipment. But when they ran the deep ray equipment on the patients, the nurses and the doctor had to go away into a safe zone, a lead line zone, and so they wouldn't get uh, damaged. And they couldn't see how the patient was going, whether the patient was still alive or being fried. So they wanted this green box. And I said to the boss, could we make it? Could the technicians make it? And he said, oh, I suppose it's for a good cause. And we sold it to them. And a year later, I was in the hospital and looked at the stuff, and they said, oh, yeah, we use that green box there to see how the patients are going. I said, how much do you pay for it? And they told me it was 10 times what we sold it for. <laughs> that shows you. Commerce quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're gullible, some of us are so generous with our time and energy and intelligence. And as we probably need to wrap this up pretty soon, but one thing I did note uh, that I remember being a huge push on in television advertising and marketing uh, that you obviously had the genesis of was a product called Enzogenol. Yes, yes, I. that's got a good story because a group of private investors had gone to try and make an equivalent to Pycnogenol in New Zealand, and they gave it to the Chemical and Process Engineering Department of Canterbury University, um, and they were stuck because there was a patent stopping them doing the standard way of extracting the um, active materials. And Ian Gilmore, a friend of mine, knew that he and I had collaborated and knew that I was a bit of an oddball that could think out of, outside the square. So I got rung up and invited over to a conference they were having with the investors. And they told me what their problem was. And I had a look and said, oh, well, you don't do that, you do this. So I gave them a water base. They were using solvent-based systems, but I knew that those compounds they were looking for were also water-based. So there was a water regime that you could use to extract it. It was very much cheaper and much safer than the um, way that had been done. So we got a patent, and it, it's still in production. It's uh, using that. The people who made pycnogenol, they don't have also changed to the water-based system, gone away from solvent. So there you go. And that was a quarter of an hour's work for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you make you make that all sound too easily easy. And in fact, um, at the outset of this interview, I talked about you being the Olympian of academia. And not only are you uh, uh, in the sciences, you're into the the commercialization of them. Uh, you're an author. You've done a lot of stuff, Kelly. And one of the things I didn't mention was when I was dean, I had the horrible job at, at uh, enrollment time of sacking all of the students who weren't performing. Now, I reasoned that they'd got their school cert, got their UE, they should have enough brains to get a degree, even if it's only a C grade degree, they should have to get a degree. So I interviewed them, I interviewed a lot of them. And um, we tried to dr drill down to the reasons why they weren't performing at the university. And it came out to be four factors were common. And none of them was, in, was intelligent or the ability to remember or any of that. The essential things you have to do for, to, to get a degree. Um, and so I did a deal with them that I wouldn't kick them out if they would attend a course that I would organize and pay for 
So I rang up the psychology department and asked for the best um, industrial psychologist post-grad that they had. Uh, I asked the, the professional staff, the, the academics, and they gave me a name. Being a cautious bloke, I rang up the secretaries who know everything about an organization, and they gave me the same name. So I contacted this young lady. She had to be young and forceful, you know, and knowledgeable about industrial psychology. And she was all these things. And she did a brilliant job. It was paid for by the students. And the university gained about nearly a million dollars in fees out of that. By the wow. And amazingly, most of them passed subsequently. Some of them got up to A grades. So I wrote a couple of papers on that in the uh, tertiary educational literature. But I got praise from all over the, the globe. They were looking for programs like this. I didn't do anything except have the ideas. Um, I just planned. I, I didn't do it. Uh, people far more capable than me did it. That lady was very capable. And um, so it was innovative. It was instituted in many universities around the world. The thing was, when I stepped down from being dean, because it was not an official program, the next dean wouldn't um, support it. it, so it just faded. Well, you know, it's, you were the catalyst. You were the catalyst for that, and you cared enough to do it. Ideas are the king, you know. They are. They are. Context of ideas. Mm. We were talking about humanity has always evolved through ideas. Yeah. You are you were talking, Kelly. You have another book coming. Yes, is that with, is it with Tross publishing again? Well, probably because he's the only one who published books as well. So you answered what I was about to ask. How hard is it for a person of you know your bent of mind to get a book published in New Zealand these days? Oh, it's impossible. God. Do, do radical books. It's impossible. Despite the, I mean, the formidable CV you have, I saw seven pages of it, and I didn't know where to start from. Despite that, what? Yes. So, how do they fob you off? What do they say? What's wrong with your uh, with publishing you? Uh, I, I think I go against the time. So, but they must have to, you know, you must be putting them in a place where they have to type out an email to you. What do they say in that? How well, do they decline it? Um, well, a rejection just as a rejection. They're always very polite. Yeah. I just had one today. They're always very polite. They never give you a reason? Why is that? Oh, yes, it's just not their sphere of interest or something. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm aware that the you know, uh, engineers, societies, or whatever body they have does that to some of their members too. So yeah. very, very awkward to get uh, papers published. And, um, yeah, good on, good on you for being tenacious and good on Tross Publishing for publishing your your book, um, The Counterblast. You want me to do many more because... Oh. That climate book is selling well. Absolutely. Well, here's a shout out for Trust Publishing to our listeners. And incidentally, for anyone who might be thinking that this green agendas is just for farming, uh, I have news for you. It is, it's not, none of us is going to escape it, whether you're a dairy farmer like me or out in town. I saw an article yesterday by Mark Dalder, uh, gentlemen, and I don't know how they throw these amounts around, but his article was on the newsroom about plans to cap climate pollution from new buildings. And it says that under the OIA documents, official briefing they've released in newsroom says that they are now going to introduce requirements to measure, report, and cap climate pollution from buildings that might drive up cost. But somehow, 
the article ends with saying that if we do all of this, we are going to add $147 billion to the economy, to our GDP. We are a country with a GDP of $350 billion. If we do this, we're going to increase it by half. And magic. Magic. I just, and I, I looked down at the comments. Just three people have commented on that article on Newsroom's website. One of them is uh, Kyron Keogh, an environmental consultant, Otago Limited. There is a Lindsay Wood from Z- Resilient NZ. Thanks, Mark Dalda, for traversing. You know the ones who respond. You know which way, you know, yeah. the dollar falls. Well, just getting back to my next work, is yep. it's actually on human evolution and the rise of civilizations. It also mentions the decline of civilizations. And, well, I, uh, I would have thought, Kelly, anyone would open that. That's not just a, you know, climate book. This should be welcomed by anyone. Yeah, well, climate comes into it at a time. Because climate change has been attributed to the the fall of the Bronze Age and um, the Roman Empire and so on, and was involved. Um, and, of course, the French Revolution was impelled by climate change, the cold of the Middle Ice Age. But I'm, I have, I think I'm promoting a new way in which uh, we evolved. The, the standard methods of, the standard mechanisms for evolution are natural selection and sexual selection, right? And I'm proposing a third one, transactional selection, where you, in free commerce, you, um, both sides benefit from the commerce. The, the buyer should have choice and the seller should have competition. And if those are free and available, then you will get an amazingly rapid increase in welfare and um, genetic wealth. And that's what's happened since the in the Enlightenment. But it's also had effect over time, over the last 150, 300,000 years, on our brain, our body, and so on that this transactional selection has enabled humans to transcend the animal condition and become highly civilized, highly in, intelligent, able to indulge in teleology planning you know, and aiming for goals. All of these things came about because we were not getting our resources by contest taking. We were getting them by trading. And that encouraged specialization and labor um, and all the good things that that trading can bring. And it explains a lot of uh, features of humans which have puzzled people for a long time, such as our very mixed genetic makeup. And that's because when people were trading, often boy would beat girl from the other side and they would have babies (laughs) and we would be a mixed genome. And all of these things. Uh, I think that there's one group who traded very extensively a long, long time ago in Central Asia, and their genes have permeated the whole earth. Um, between five and forty percent of your genes come from this group. And dead. Now, how do you explain and, that with with natural selection? You can't. And, and dare tell. Dare tell anyone that we're hybrids of something else. Uh, it doesn't go down well. You say that in New Zealand, well, we're all hybrids of something. Uh, you know, and especially in Maori, they don't like that argument. They just don't like it. But we are. We are. We we've got 
We've even got Neanderthal genes, and we've got genes from E. coli, <laughs> from the bacteria. We have a lot of bacterial genes. You can't deny that those are facts. And interestingly, listeners, I'm looking. Uh, we we do this live, and um, Kelly's on a, on a video link, and he's smiling all the way through this. He just loves his subjects, and um, yeah, we we love hearing them. And hopefully, we can do it again, Kelly. Yep, sure. Get, um, maybe get the... we might be able to stick to the script. I, I might be yes. able to stick to the script. You know what I'm like. <laughs> Well, and me, and me too. We certainly went all over the shop uh, and sort of came around in circles, got back to base, and then went off on another tangent. But hopefully, our listeners have found it uh, invigorating. Uh, there is, there is different ideas in society. It isn't all just what comes out of the parliament that is, is uh, what the holy uh, grail. Yeah, is the holy grail. They're, they're right, Jasper. <laughs> so, Kelly, um, we thank you for. For your hour and a half, uh, it's gone very quickly. Uh, we hope your book uh, writing continues. I, I, yeah, I would love a one-page crazy, uh, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, a one-page crazy at the beginning. Okay, and uh, we hope that the sales of your book, uh, the counterblast to ma- to man-made global warming hypothesis, uh, continue to go to go well. And mm-hmm. so, Jaspreet, I think uh, that's about us for mm-hmm. this section. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Kelly. And uh, for our oh, listeners, nice. we've recorded this earlier. So this is on the duck shooting weekend. You have any plans, Kelly? No, no, I, I'm not a hunter. I've sort of gone off hunting. I don't know why. Um, I used to be keen, but I've got older and it's co- it's colder out there, you know. And no. I've sort of given up alcohol too. And one of the, the beauties of duck hunting was the whiskey that you could drink in the Mai Mai away from the family with friends. Uh, oh, heck. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. Uh, Thanks, Kelly. Thank you so much for your time, gentlemen. And we'll definitely have you back again, Kelly, if you have the time. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. With that, we come to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. This was a reality check for the week with the Greenwash team, me, Josh Preet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Goodbye.